Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Extras for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of comics' marvelous mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we've got a fully packed episode for you, so let's get right to it. In this next segment, myself, Nathan, Maddie, and Drew take a look at the most recent issue of Wolverine. Ben Percy's been writing Wolverine, whether it's through the Wolverine podcast or the pages of his comic, for quite a while, and we take a look at not only how he's evolved that character, but his own writing style in terms of his pacing, and his use of the white data pages. Hey guys, and welcome back to another spectacular episode of Access for Podcast. My name is Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man, and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. Hey, I'm Nathan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. That's Dazzler AOA. Hey, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcipher3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I'm Nico. You guys can find me over here at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I think I'm like technically the only person that loves Wolverine on this episode. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't say you're the only person who loves Wolverine. I, I do think that we all have a very varied relationship with Wolverine, if nothing else. But if nothing else, we are assembled together today to bring you issue 12, Penumbra, of Wolverine, written by Ben Percy, with art by Scott Eaton, and ink by J.P. Mayer, with Oren Jr. on pages 15 to 20, and color art by Matthew Wilson. The vampires, inexplicably, are back, and they're making moves. Uh, Having recently regrouped with a newly turned Louise, Logan faces off with the former head of the Night Guard, attacking at the behest of Dracula. While Father Cole, indisposed, Logan and Louise head to Krakoa to rally some reinforcements. Forge outfits Louise with a bioengineered suit capable of sustaining her in daylight and suppressing her need to feed, while the brain trust of X-Force, with the aid of Omega Red, develop a plot to use Wolverine as the ultimate bait turn dirty bomb. Now, we've been oscillating through plot points here in Ben Percy's run of not only X-Force, but Wolverine specifically, and the last two issues of Wolverine have made explicit comparison with the function of X-Force and the function of the CIA. While this metaphor was in everybody's early predictions of the trajectory of X-Force as a title, do you feel that the role of X-Force is in some capacity limiting the mobility of Wolverine as a standalone title, or do you feel that having Logan situated as a major player in this organization provides a local harbor of sorts that the title can dock when not moving elsewhere? So let me start with I'm the guy that loves Wolverine the most. And now let me go to the statement that I think we can all agree on. Wolverine doesn't need a solo title. Wolverine doesn't need a solo title because Wolverine will always be able to sell a solo title. It's a foregone conclusion that if Wolverine's name graces a motherfucking book, it's going to make it in the motherfucking top 50. That's just how this works, right? I think the thing that makes Wolverine special is when he's not there. Wolverine is someone who can create a threat in her, like in his vacuumed absence, right? And I said her because I was immediately going to 
Laura, and then I was immediately going to the storm story they just did in Marauders, where she wasn't there and everybody felt her. Like, I can't stop thinking of characters they do this really well with, where, like, the characters didn't even have to show up. Magneto, his looming shadow does enough, right? So I think the place he should be is X-Force. I don't think I need Wolverine. Like, he should just be in everything. He shouldn't have his own anything. God, you know, and I'm so glad that you said that, because, and it's not at all a testament to Ben Percy's handling of the character, but there is something special about seeing X-Force appear or some capacity of X-Force appear in the pages of Wolverine that reminds me of his involvement in some way that in, in, in a weird subversive way, it feels kind of special because I'm like, oh yeah, he's super involved with this. It's, if nothing else, I enjoy how Percy has been handling the shuffling of the events of his current dozen issues of this run i definitely think that by the end of this episode we'll have a lot to discuss regarding the the singular trajectory of this title but if nothing else nathan drew how did you feel about wolverine x-force the kind of crossover this issue okay so i thought this was the best issue of x-force i ever read and then i had to read the title again and i realized it was a wolverine issue so like Literally, I I think him having both X Force and the Wolverine solo title, it doesn't have as much. There's not as much difference, and there's not as much of a, a need for Wolverine to have these solo adventures, especially when they bring X Force into them so much. Like hands down, this definitely read like what I want X Force to read like all the time. Um, these last few issues, the involvement of the whole team, I, I'm good with it, even if it focuses just on Wolverine. But I don't know that I see the need for the two of these titles to be separate titles i'd kind of love for them to combine back into one and maybe it could be wolverine and x-force kind of thing yeah i agree um basically this like we could have instead of just like this could have been like we could have just made this an arc on x-force like with the vampires and just included the whole crew on an x-force like book i would say either end of the book or turn it into like a wolverine family book oh i do not want to take scout away from uh new mutants though because no no yes take her away take her far (laughs) far away no 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 No, no, no. There is a foreboding (laughs) sense of darkness hanging over New Mutants these days. And you will get my Abby away from that cloud of sadness. Vita should write this Wolverine family book. I'm not fighting giving Vita Gabby. But get Gabby away from this 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 MC Escher painting that it's transforming into. It's 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 a it's a hodgepodge of everything you didn't know you didn't need from there you know where ben percy succeeds for me personally though i i recognize that i may be an island alone here is his ability to pick up and put down plot points for later and better use i know and i have been super fortunate to cover a lot of wolverine and i think if i if i go back though i though i haven't admittedly i think we've all kind of touched on this title maybe with the exception of of drew but please correct me if i'm wrong but I have in the past compared him to Jonathan Hickman in in some regard, and in some titles, though, this is ultimately more successful than others. Where I may feel that X-Force is a little bit lacking in a clear trajectory, the pick-up and put-down style of Percy's is really working for me more and more with every arc on Wolverine. Like, I recognize that at one point I was critical of it in my coverage, but he's really homogenizing the fractured elements of the story in the story of the mutants at large in a way that is still uniquely separate enough 
that I accepted as a Wolverine story. Do I think that there is a utility for it? Yes. Do I think that there is a necessity for it? Certainly not. But that is not a criticism of this run. Just the, the necessity for Wolverine to exist on his own. He should exist sparingly in a group title for a couple years and just let him be a marvel, a looming shadow in, in and of himself. And, you know, I love that you're saying how you've grown to appreciate Percy's, uh, let's go with um, shelf style, right? Let's call it shelf style. Percy's really good at putting the things he needs on the shelf and picking them back up off the shelf when he needs them. He never puts them out of view. It's not about putting them in a drawer. It's on a shelf. Now, I think it's actually a really popular style at Marvel to have that sort of what we'll call cash access to ideas on retainer. You see it a lot with Jason Aaron and his transformative style across his years at Marvel, most notably across his Thor run. You can also see that across somebody like a Bendis, right, where you can see see the way he would seed something in issue one of something and bring it full due in issue 36, especially elements of his Daredevil, which paid off across 60, 70 issues. But I think my souring on it here is because so much of the X line is leaning into this hiatus of idea kind of thing where we see a title start with something and then kind of forget it's there for a little bit. How many times did we say that about early Howard's Excalibur? How many times did we say that about how we felt immediately following Ten of Swords there wasn't enough Araco? Any fucking where, right? So I think I think I like it because I think I think Ben Percy's real smart, but I wane on my interest in the device. See, I'm kind of almost the opposite. This is the most interested I've been in Ben Percy's style since X-Force and Wolverine started. Like, they've always had the pieces there, but they never really gelled. And I think lately, for me personally, everything's been actually gelling together. We have been seeing some of the return on investment that we got from the issues that we saw earlier. Like, we are seeing them revisit these ideas. We are seeing them actually pay off these thoughts pieces that they put in our mind. I was even looking at the data pages in this. And if I'm pretty sure if you go back into Percy's data pages throughout even both um, Wolverine and X-Force, they are pretty lengthy. Like some of the most lengthy, I think, in like the Dawn or like the post Hoxpox X-Men. Um, you know, and just like you like you're getting like so much information from his writing and 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 that from the issues. And you know, Drew, I love that you pointed that out because like I'd been trying to place what it was about his data pages that felt sort of I don't want to say exaggerated because that's not the word, but they do feel verbose. And anyone who's ever written in both stage and comic script can tell you in on a stage, you get to really like lavish your actors with these gorgeous monologues and these beautiful eloquences. And you get to really pizzazz those fuckers. But on a comic, you've got exactly as much room as your artist didn't draw in. And so frequently, the strength of Percy's writing on the Wolverine audiobook was the audiobook i'm a hundred years old on the wolverine podcast <laughs> was the eloquence of his character language and in a comic he usually doesn't get to do that quite as much so i really agree with you drew there's something really like verboten about his data pages <laughs> that i think really plays to his strengths as an author yeah and i remember i i don't remember what issue it was or what even from what series but it was one of his data pages went it was like it was comic 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 and then went to like straight like novel like the data page 
page was just like, and then Jean said this and like they went here. You know, it was like a novel data page and then went back comic, comic, comic. Well, I, t- I tell you what, early X-Force was really dense in that in that degree of exposition. And I feel like there is, as Nico pointed out, as Drew pointed out, there is incredible merit to that because there is such a limited, as somebody, as Nico just mentioned earlier, the Wolverine audiobook, as we could call it, or podcast, as everyone, but but I suppose this room would call it, is that there is such expressive language use where where the the narrow focus of these data pages is such, it's, it's an anathema to that. It really is making such incredible use of such small, small space. But to come back to that in, in just a little bit, I want to kind of take this um, straight through the issue because I feel like it's a Wolverine vampire hunting story. So there's a lot to unpack, but at the same time, there really isn't. So <laughs> I'm pretty certain that the response to Louise having been turned into a vampire last issue was hit or miss for some. Like, while I personally didn't see it coming so soon, I recognize that the well of vampire-themed tropes are limited at best and derivative at worst. And there is always some aspect of betrayal in vampire hunting stories. And we see that seed get planted by the late Father Cole in the mind of Louise on behalf of Dracula, etc. So with Louise being a tertiary character at best, the last dozen issues, it still doesn't hurt to speculate if in fact this arc is still what we're going to pick up on in issue 13. Are we going to ultimately see her turn on Logan or will she be in this fight against the undead to the bitter end, regardless of her disposition? I just... Oh, oh, no, go, Nathan. You're, you know, (laughs) alphabetically. (laughs) I was going to say, just... I, I think with the inclusion of the last pages that I know we'll get to later, I think that's, for me, that story is taking the turn to where she's going to end up going with that group in the end. That's what I foresee. And she, she might turn on Logan in that way, going with the Severlith group. But I don't see her going with the Dracula group. That's that's ultimately pretty fair. Nico, you had some, some thoughts there as well. Well, Dracula's been running around Jason Aaron's Avengers being so annoying. (laughs) And it's just so fucking annoying, right? Almost as annoying as Namor. So that's pretty big, right? <laughs> so, you know, Dracula really does always come with a, a betrayal energy, right? There really is some, like, you know, that's like a thing, like Gorilla Man and Avengers. You know, there's always this element of someone's going to betray the team. And I'm okay with that here. And not that I am putting anything on Percy particularly, but we do need to be careful when we tread these sort of heteronormative male predator stories that we, I, I need her not to fall in love with solemn and then die tragically at the end of the arc oh my god i i I need it not to be any form of of that sort of fridge syndrome or even but he's so bad and it feels so good i don't want either of those things and again it's not about percy it's about concerns with the trope of genre and and i'm i could not be more thrilled that you took us to the trope of genre because that's that is that harkens back to some of our immediate post ten of swords coverage when we were sort of reassessing what wolverine was as a solo title which unfortunately Unfortunately, much to the to the despair of Wolverine as a solo title, is frequently the topic of discussion, not because of Ben Percy, but because of necessity. There was a lot of talk about how Wolverine is succeeding in this format because it plays on 
genre exclusivity in, in, in some way. It's not like Cable where I, I believe I likened it to some sort of uh, film, sort of sepia grain film Tarantino, you know, shoot 'em up. This can be a Western when it needs to, and it can be a, a vampire horror story when it needs to, and it can be a Jason Bourne-esque CIA, you know, special ops story when it needs to. I think that there is a lot to be mined from. It's just a matter of how much longer we can let it sustain itself or how much longer the title can prove to sustain itself in this oscillating format. But if we can jump back a minute, and speaking of betrayals and touching on everyone's least favorite Russian, although I cannot say that we have a favorite Russian at the moment. Sorry, Colossus. Magic. Magic can be our favorite Russian. Yeah, hello. <laughs> hello. I'm, I'm devastated that that didn't come first to mind. I'm, I'm hurt, but thank you for immediately holding me accountable that's what i look for from this family omega red his role in these titles is becoming more confusing for me than anything um you know from where i stand i see him as poised to go in either direction as far as betrayal to whomever where x forces a title is concerned the concept of omega's red's morality seemed pretty black and white so to have him situated in this oh and it's wolverine everything so you're welcome for the song um if if every time you listen to this i get paid one penny so to have him situated in this late in the game change of heart in the pages of wolverine makes me wonder what ben percy's overall intention is having written both titles since their relaunch so christ if i had to form a question out of this i guess it's twofold uh whose team do you really think omega red is playing for and more important does seeing the shift in red's characterization across two percy properties make you at all the more inclined to revisit his role in x-force as for clues to what's to come i think that omega red's deception or defection against the vampires has to do with his rebirth we know that there are some properties that they don't always tell us about that they can mentally change people around so I'm, I'm wondering if his change of heart change of character has a lot to do with that rebirth process that's pretty fair i i do think that there has been a certain element of rebirth to the character especially in having been literally reworked with the the tainted as you can call it carbonadium synthesizer so if nothing else that that could be a definitive biological reason for a shift in character but uh nico drew sound off i was actually surprised that he flipped i even actually have it in my notes just because he was working with the vampires in like the last issue kind of and now he's like working against them with the the x-force but um my thing is like i'm guessing he either something's gonna happen later or he just wants to like chill out um i think it was in the last issue he was just like when they were watching him he was just like you know chilling in the forests of krakoa you know doing his hunting thing maybe that's all he wants to do and at one point, he, he says he explicitly wants to be left alone to be his own mutant. So that certainly is more than enough reason in, in, in the case of him siding with the Krakowans. But Nico, what you got? You know, I really genuinely don't get Omega Red. I think you can kind of, you can kind of take your Carnages and your Omega Reds and I guess anybody who's kind of red and kind of from the 90s 
anything that looks like a hemophiliac's attempt at forming a scab essentially is this creature of the 90s that exists only to be scary at all times. <laughs> and I think Omega Red, in all of his goddamn St. Olaf Gunter looking bullshit, is one of the least compelling villains the X-Men has ever shit out of its great genetic compound. I just don't get it. I've never understood characters who their whole shit is that they're scary. Do you know what makes Mr. Sinister memorable? That he fucking looks like that? And he'll eat you! I think Omega Red looks like he's probably got a drinking problem and just needs somebody to listen to him, right? Yeah, oh, then, my God, yes. And that, that high pony wolf shit in the back? No, no. And I I don't, I genuinely don't get it. Like, that said, I think that's what Percy's doing. This character is just a big ball of shit. Whether he's getting misused by Jim Lee, or he's getting misused by Daniel Way, or he's getting misused by anyone along the way, he's just big, angry Russian killbot. He doesn't have a lot of nuance. And I think that's what Percy's playing against. You love this character? What the fuck is there to love? That's that is that is certainly one take on it. Holy hell. I no, I I absolutely do love that. I, I, I do think that there is a lot of attention being paid to Omega Red because, again, Percy is leading X-Force and Wolverine. We're seeing a lot of interplay with Omega Red over on X-Force. We maybe a little bit thought that that thread was left cold for a while after the Cold War conclusion to the Russian collusion arc. That was a little bit contrived and a lot of bit ridiculous. And I feel like there is a great neutering happening of Omega Red where I feel... Truly, and this is, and I really hope that I'm I'm hitting the nail on the head here, and I really hope that I'm not being diminutive of of anybody's work, but I feel like this is a last ditch effort to make Omega Red visible, if not accessible, in the age of Krakoa, and if not, he's going to end up the way of Sabretooth, and I'll be entirely honest. I would have been much happier, though I wouldn't change a single thing about House and Powers as a big old fanboy. I would have been just as happy to see Omega Red thrown in the hole for 18 to 24 months of publication uh, by the time of this release. And to have seen Sabretooth see that last-ditch effort for redemption. Because if nothing else, as Nico pointed out, there is something spectacularly, and I use the term technically, spectacularly ridiculous about Omega Red. He screams the 90s. He's if a hair metal frontman turned into a Transformer that was also whiplash. It's fucking ridiculous, and that's nobody's fault except the 90s. He literally looks like out there somewhere there's a Shih Tzu that looks exactly like him waiting to enter a dog competition in a Christopher Guest movie. That is what he looks like. I just I don't I don't hate anyone who's created him or worked on him or anything. It's not about that. It's about an echo. It's about this character presents no print. He is an echo of extremity, but he is an extreme lack of substance. It's it, I don't I just don't want anybody to think like I fucking hate Jim Lee. I don't fucking hate Jim Lee. I would Jim Lee, I'm the son you never had. Adopt huh. me, Dad. You know, like I love Jim Lee, but like I really don't get Omega Red. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought Omega Red was the like the basis they realized they fucked up and they were like, okay, let's create Sinyaka instead for the Ikelot. So I uh, 
Gosh, I, I I really don't even know. Drew, do you have any Omega Red hate to spew? Uh, I mean, I don't have hate or love. He's just like a big giant brick. And that's and meat that's sack, kind of, you know, exactly. like that's all he is. And like he's just like like I don't like what is like name a personality trait of Omega Red? Like I don't really know. He's you know angry, I guess, but like <laughs> you know, it, there's there's just not really much to him. And and I I don't and again, like Nico said, it's not necessarily like he's a he's he's like not like a main like he's not like a big x-men villain you know he's like b-list c-list you know like he's down there for sure yeah he's down there for he's logan's tentacle monster he's literally (laughs) all snake arms he's all snake arms and no substance anybody threw him in the hole for 18 months though during house of uh, during hoxbox would anybody have missed him like people miss Sabretooth because he's a lot more compelling but nobody would have missed omega red i just reread uncanny x-men uh war of the realms no actually i'm gonna i'm not trying to be weird and and i'm certainly not going off topic we'll do a separate video about this Sabretooth deserves the hole like more than almost any other x-men villain oh he does he's 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 uh, heinous and and I'm oh actually God. setting a setting a note to make a video of this. <laughs> because he literally, I mean, he literally turns on Earth in the War of the Realms and pledges his allegiance to Malachite on the spot. It was the most fucking egregious thing. It was. I had never been so happy to see Liana kick somebody's head into a stepping disc. So. That was really thrilling for me. You know, I, I I just can't get over if we're gonna if we're gonna air our grievances. If this is, <laughs> if this is indeed Festivus for the rest of us, I I can only pivot to one thing, and it's been eating at me since I read this, however many days ago. It is no secret that the Dawn of X era has its clone problem to get a handle on, mm. from Zeb Wells' handling of Madeline Pryor over in Hellions to Jerry Dugan's work on Cable. There is a certain degree of uncertainty surrounding the role of clones in the modern X era. And that being said, it's surprising to see, or it's as surprising to see a living Wolverine clone used as a decoy in a council-sanctioned organization as it is unsurprising to know that the idea was fucking greenlit by Beast. So... Of course it was. (laughs) Of course, because of course it was, because this is X-Force Jr., uh, so if if nothing else, what are your thoughts on the inconsistent and perhaps hypocritical use of Krakoan clone? Ooh, here's a five times fast. Uh, Krakoan grown clones. <laughs> Who can make the stuff bad? Sprinkle it with bad. The beastie man can. That's my entire fucking opinion on this character anymore. It's my- all fucking bad, man. It's really fucking bad. Fighting goodness with his bad stuff. Winning oh evil with his bad stuff. He's Sailor Beast bad. is a dumb fuck. Like, I mean, it is... He's, I he is hate a douchebag. He's called Beast. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drew, do you also Sailor Moon that you care like the rest of us or no? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't watched Sailor Moon in like uh, 20 years, so... <laughs> Oh my god, I'm doing a watch of that right now. I've never watched it before. That is somehow 25 years overdue. Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. ju- I'm just saying it is it is near and dear and special. And then if you're a dark, sick fuck like me and you enjoy Sailor Moon, you get to watch Puella Magi Madoka Magica. And that's a fucking deep cut if anyone wants to hit me up on Twitter. Um, Yo, but none but, of you ever do. But hold on. If we can just motherfucking talk for two seconds about Pretty Guardian because PGSM is my everything. And I think we should all take more time to respect and obsess over the live action Sailor Moon Sentai. 
Ooh, I've added that to my list because I've heard it's amazing. It is actually breathtaking. I have uh, I have friends who podcast anime, so we're going to get a joint venture going. I think that if not for what comes directly after the Dirty Bomb scene, and best believe I'm going to get us there to the fucking epilogue, but I might have felt a bit underwhelmed by the resolution or at least current appeasement of the Dracula plot. Now, there's the whole epilogue to discuss in just a moment, but for what it's worth, was anybody's first reaction kind of like, well, foiled again to the way that Percy kind of kept Dracula at bay this time? Yeah, I just kind of feel like they could have done this, like, a lot. Like, it, this could have been, do- like, done in any ish- like issue. Like, they could have just thrown, like, fat, like, they could have done it in the, the Wolverine when he was in that cabin that was full of them with the teenagers. He could have done it there, you know? Like, it could have been resolved... It it was, it's just kind of like a like a snap of the fingers. Oh, we're done. Like bye. <laughs> yeah, a little a, a little bit. I and and I feel like if if this were the first time, I would be a little bit more forgiving of it. But I understand that I listen. I understand not wanting to wrap up this this impending Dracula plot in the span of two issues after not having touched it for six issues. There's nothing wrong with wanting to give something the time that it deserves. And I definitely understand wanting to touch base with this before it was literally too far out of sight, out of mind, because we've talked about like shelving certain ideas. I think bringing this back into the fold came at the absolute appropriate time. Do I, do I think that we dismounted from it properly? I think what came next, if nothing else, was was what was truly spectacular. But if, if nothing else, I wanna I wanna just really touch on the dirty bomb conclusion because I wanna tie things back to Drew's mention of the data pages because I'm a goddamn elephant. I don't forget. I truly think that all of the inclusion of the microbiology in the data pages, which out of respect for the three of you and everybody listening, I'm not going to pretend that I understand personally, but it's what floated this dirty bomb conclusion for me. You know, the Wolverine clone being used with the the antigen from a fungal, you know, composite to make the, the blood clocks inactive or for whatever reason, you know, turn on the vampires that use them. I think this issue and the last were ripe for a very densely detailed explanation for not only the compatibility of the antigens in Logan's blood to justify the blood clocks, but with Beast's explanation of KP4, the toxin responsible for the bioweapon inside the clone. Um, That data page, Drew, paid off a whole issue later. Like if nothing else, and we really we've we've been a little critical of Wolverine as a series, but that is competency. Yeah. Mm. I mean, no, the criticism is of of okay. Well, okay, hold on. Okay, everybody, go back. The word criticism comes from the. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but like I, I do get what you mean. I don't feel like we've ever been critical of Percy's ability. I feel like we're critical of the corporate comics container execution of some of his ideas. And I do think that the elements you're pointing to are really spectacular. It's never that Percy himself isn't a great writer, because he is. I mean, you know, we all love Wolverine, uh, the podcast, and we all, you know, tend to enjoy his work in comic form. Um, You know, I think there's this joke, right? And it's from an old episode of Will and Grace, and Grace is reading a People magazine, 
and she's talking about how she's actually really blown away by Sarah Michelle Gellar and her depth and her complexity reading this article because, you know, it all kind of starts kind of like, oh, on the set of Buffy, but, you know, she starts talking about like disarming warheads and, you know, peace in the Middle East and it's really powerful. And Will says, Grace, are you sure? And she goes, oh, wait, nope. I just combined it with an article about Colin Powell. Oh, wait, here it is. Limos are still really cool after all this time. You know, <laughs> I should have thought something was up when she started talking about her time at a POW camp. And that is exactly this Wolverine book for me. I'm not even kidding. Like parts of it, I'm like, wow, wow. The Gaza Strip and disarming Palestine. And then limos are still really cool after all these years. And that is my relationship with this book. So sometimes it it's just vampires bite, bite. But sometimes it is this deep level science where at a certain point you just kind of go argle, gargle, google, goop, because it just does start to be like so much science and you have to be in a science brain to read it. I think the dude is so talented. I think Wolverine, because it is a book that will always be in print, comes with a lot of caveat to it. And I believe that that does in many ways infringe on, many ways does infringe on Percy's ability to be the genius that he is. So when he is able to sneak little things like that in, like the near iridescence of the brilliance that comes along with shaping a science formula to prove your idea. You know, I think that that is so spectacular, but you know, it's, it's corporate comics, man. I, I think one of the things this book is doing a good job of highlighting, and it's really underscored how it's doing it, is like we mentioned earlier, a lot of the hypocrisies of Krakoa. Um, there's a lot of wrinkles in Krakoa and society that they've been popping up, but the two main ones, obviously the use of the clone Wolverine is the dirty bomb, but also to me, the hypocrisy of having Louise be on the island herself when they wouldn't bring uh, Kamala Khan and the rest of the champions on when they needed to escape from the U.S. government at the time. So I, I just think X-Force and its CIA role is is exposing a lot of the hypocrisies, the hypocrisies of the society. I truly, I, I, I definitely have to agree with that and and if nothing else i'm going to move us along to what what really succeeds for me in this issue which has to be the last five pages i mean christ during our coverage of ten of swords there was there was such a good deal of attention paid to all of these early teasers you know speculations made about the function and utilization of many of these new characters and locations and the majority of these characters and locations have been disregarded in the many months since that event ended. So that said, I still wholly expect to see Solemn return to the pages of Wolverine before the year's out. But I was absolutely gobsmacked to see the the organic inclusion of Sevelith and the reintroduction of the Horseman Death. Yes. From a title that's danced around progressing in strictly one direction, the tide has certainly shifted in a short but powerful epilogue. So what are your thoughts on the deafness of Percy's dif- dismount here at the end of a dozen issues? I think that this ending of this issue was the ending that, I hate to say this, it's the ending I needed, but I didn't know that I needed. So it's the ending that I wanted, but I didn't know that I needed because it's a really natural progression of it. And actually the way they describe vampirism in the first panel that we're on Sevenlith is so magical and amazing. And just the idea that it may have sprung from Sevenlith itself is really exciting. Yeah, 
I'm honestly excited to see um, how it's going to play out next. Um, just because, like, when all of those other world um, data pages came up during Exoswords, I kind of just, like, skimmed past them. So I actually <laughs> didn't really know this was around. Um, I kind of, like, you know, figured it out with the editor's note and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm, like, super interested with the last panel and, like, what's it going to lead to. After all these years, limos are still really cool. Hey everyone, it's Nathan, and in this next episode, Josh, Kyle, and I cover the amazing dynamic issue that is New Mutants 18. Vida Ayala and Rob Reyes have put together a masterpiece, and we are here to gush about it. We talk about so many important things, like Shan's resurrection, how important it is that she came back with her bionic leg. We talk about the use of the crucible to separate Shan and Tran, the reaction that are justified from the Wild Hunt kids, especially Cosmar. We ask really important questions like, are Danny and Shan in a relationship? We tend to think they are, but it's all subtext at this point. Also, is the Shadow King on a path for redemption? That remains to be seen, and we cannot wait to see where this tale takes us. Hey everyone, on this episode of Exes for Podcast, we are taking the journey of psychic surgery, betrayal from those that say they have your best interests at heart, and a brutal act done out of love. I'm Nathan, you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Josh, you can find me at Asleep at the wheel w-e-i-l on twitter and at asleep at the wheel.com and for the next two years as the progressive democrat running for u.s senate in the state of florida you can find me across social media at wheel the number four u.s senate and at joshwheel.org and we hope you survived the experience like well i mean everybody does in the end i guess because it's krakoa but you know Danny did kind of kill shan but you know she came back so that's a good thing <laughs> new mutants 18 is written to by the talented vita ayala rod reyes is on art vcs travis lanham is on letters so this issue really is the story of two tales we have shan's crucible story and the reaction from the wild hunt kids so before we jump into the actual story itself what do you guys know about the relationship between Shan and her and her twin Tran? Are there any questions you guys have about their journey together? Oh boy. I have absolutely no idea what happened with Shan and Tran at all. I've only spent time with Shan in the original New Mutants. So there really, I don't remember him making an appearance in that. He did not. Okay. <laughs> uh, Josh, you're, you're pretty good with the whole story or? Yeah, he had died just before we first get Shan in New Mutants. Absolutely. If I remember, this is my not cheating looking on the wiki and just going <laughs> off of my Cliff Notes memory. And then we got a lot of Tran just before the Hoxpox era in uh, New Mutants Dead Souls by Matthew Rosenberg, Absolutely. where he was the spectral entity behind all of the ghost shenanigans that Shan sent the Ileana team out to investigate in that story. Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Okay. So they they both appeared in Marvel Team Up 100. So that makes Shan the first New Mutant to appear. So she was like sort of the precursor to the team. When they appear in the first appearance, Tran had 
kidnapped Nagan Leong and was working for their uncle. So during that time, Shan had to battle with Tran. And during that battle, she had to decide somehow through Marvel magic to absorb the essence of her twin. He was described at that time as being maybe a little bit more of the powerful of the twin, but she was more resourceful at the time and had more reason to want to win the fight. So that's how she won. Yeah, and that's a good point too, bringing up the Marvel team up because this is not the last time that Claremont is going to treat Marvel team up like their sequential issues of New Mutants and expect <laughs> everyone reading New Mutants to know what was going on in Marvel team up. He does it multiple times during his New Mutant run and those issues are often regularly left out of the omnibuses and collected retellings as well. So you, you definitely have to go back and catch those Marvel team-up stories. I know there's another big one where Rain and Barberto get essentially like possessed and have like the darkness in them and they get cloak and dagger powers. They like wind up yeah. stealing cloak and dagger what? powers. And oh, yeah. from, from one issue of New Mutants to the next, like this whole story happened over like an arc in Marvel team-up and you just suddenly have like six diseased Berto and Rain with cloak and dagger powers and no explanation at all in the New Mutants issues. <laughs> wow. It's, it's Yeah, it's very true. So in yeah, Marvel Team of 100 is the Shan story. So then later they appear in a little bit later. And thankfully this is in the New Mutants omnibus. But you're right, Josh, in a lot of the other collected editions, they kind of just like gloss over it. The Marvel Team Up Annual 6 is the one that has that cloak and dagger story where Rain and Roberto get the cloak and dagger powers. And it's that is touched upon later on in like almost directly sequeled right after Demon Bear's story in issue 23 and 24 of New Mutants. So that's like a direct sequel to that. And they also appear in Marvel Team of 149 that kind of goes exactly right into the, another New Mutants story. So yeah, Claremont does that a lot with New Mutants where he just goes, hey, this Marvel Team thing happened and ha ha gotta read it kind of thing um he also does that a little bit with uncanny when they first appear so you've got one that's uncanny 160 167 180 189 and 192 that the new mutants appear and he also does that same thing where he continues the story from there and often it does have reverberations and repercussions in the book itself but he doesn't necessarily retell that whole story making you try to go out and buy <laughs> in what would be much more fitting for the hawkspox era he just assumes that you've read absolutely everything and you know that that you're completely on board and no explanation is necessary like i'm pretty sure the first time the new mutant kids show up in uncanny x-men there's never a hey introduction to other characters these are our new students like you should get to know them here in this other series <laughs> it's just they're there and you're expected to know who they are it's right when they come back from space during the brood saga so uh you've got xavier he is kind of under control of this brood so the x-men have to go take him down and then it, they just show up in the nubians <laughs> they're like they're kind of like huh, who are these but he doesn't really go into great detail to explain it yeah so new mutants 100 starts the story and then like josh says new mutants dead souls by matthew rosenberg does continue and sort of elevate the shan and trans story between then we don't get a lot of mentions of tran actually it's almost like he's almost kind of forgotten because you know it's kind of weird that she absorbed her twin but you know it's 
Marvel, so they do some crazy thing with twin powers. But like Josh said, in Dead Souls, he does become a separate entity, and in the last crazy and insane issue, Shan uses Ileana by possessing her and sort of killing Tran as a separate entity, bonding them together. This kind of brings up the crux of what I'm going to wonder what Shan is going forward. We only know Shan as Tran and Shan combined. Who do we think Shan is by herself? Besides being in love with Danny. I mean, this is about as close to text while still being subtext as you can get. Because I know, like, I sent Nathan my notes after this <laughs> issue, and my notes for New Mutants 18 were just Shan and Danny are definitely fucking. But how wild would it be to find out that Shan isn't actually a lesbian that was just like Tran attracted to girls because there was a heterosexual male entity bonded to her, and now that totally fucks up her lesbian relationship with Danny? Mm. Like, there's so much i don't think that would happen but like there is an incredible amount of question mark here moving forward because there's a we're gonna see a character that we've come to know so well in a completely different light oh no absolutely and oh my god i swear to god if marvel does that where oh she is not really a lesbian it was all tran all along that would be the most fucked up thing and i think they would have a lot of people riot they better make sure I was just going to say, they better make sure their insurance is, uh, insurance premiums are paid up on Marvel headquarters if they, un- if they un-lesbian Shan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, oh, God. I trust Hita. I don't believe they would do that. I really am positive they wouldn't do that. But, oh, wow. That does bring up interesting. No, if, if we had a middle-aged hetero white man writer on this book, I would be extremely anxious at the end of this issue. But I, I trust in the Vita. Yeah, yeah I, I trust that Vito wouldn't do that to to Shan. In Vito, we trust. Uh, they have, <laughs> they've been knocking it out of the park with Nubians, I do have to say. Their Children of the Atoms story has been definitely a lot more of a rocky story for me. I'm not sure that I see where they are going with it yet, but with their Nubian story, I positively see the trajectory that they're on, and I love it. Well, the good news is that we do have a little more time with Children of the Atom than we had thought. It turns out it is an ongoing, not a uh, limited run. I am going to hold to what we said on the Children of the Atom 3 episode, that it was not a mass hallucination. Like... (laughs) The fact that all of us swore we had read or heard them saying it was a miniseries or changed to a miniseries when it got re-solicited for 2021, that was not a mass hallucination, regardless of the fact that I can't actually find the evidence online anymore. Yeah, they probably scrubbed the internet of it. (laughs) Who that... that hell knows at this point but if all of us remember the same thing where i mean poor children of the atom i mean that book has been through so much um, and i am glad to see that because it needs now more than ever time to really get its footing and kind of demonstrate what it is five issues would not have been enough I think with children of the atoms the yes obviously one of the big things that really maybe messed up the flow for me i don't know about for you guys is how long that time 
title was delayed. I think my expectations on the title being delayed for, it was over a year, I believe, was maybe too much for it. I know that whenever you create all new characters, it does take some time to really get them in and down packed. And Vita, they haven't even gotten to what the actual mystery of the story is. And I just got, I've got to have faith in them that they'll get there with it. But they are getting there with the new mutants for me. Yeah, and I think one of the things, too, is that this is a title that even before Vita, when Ed Brisson was on it, we felt that it was at its best when we got Rod Reyes art. And so, you know, for the first 10 issues... We really only got to see Reyes with Hickman because they were splitting duties there. And then we did get some Reyes and Brisson issues. And and Reyes was Reyes was what really kind of made this book special. Um, now that we have a writer who is bringing so much more care and really deeply setting multiple storylines with multiple generations, now that this book has purpose and focus and that we're getting these character dynamics that we really wanted, this, this spotlight on on Danny and Shan in particular, getting to see what Rain's going through. Now that we're getting these kind of new mutant beats that we've been waiting for, the Rod Reyes art is just, it's extra. Like, this is probably the best the book has been for me. I would say, you know, it'd be either this or the first Hickman Reyes art, which was just super special from an Ileana standpoint. Like, Ileana owned those early Hickman Reyes issues. Oh, yeah. But it's it's gorgeous. I mean, this is a absolutely gorgeous gorgeous book all the way through special note too for the beautiful cover art by christian ward who i mean everything christian ward does is gorgeous but what a perfect compliment to what we get on the interiors from reyes and also a phenomenal artist to be doing a shan spotlight with the way he uses colors and geometry anyway for highlighting shan's powers and the way they work like we tend to think of the colors on christian ward's art as focusing on a lot of pinks and blues which is a color scheme you get a lot because of the way they've historically always drawn Shan's powers. So it's it's just a beautiful cover as well. Um, and this is a, a big art book for me. Um, I, I absolutely love page by page what we get here in the interiors. Oh gosh, absolutely. Kyle, what is yeah. your take on the art? <laughs> uh, it has been absolutely beautiful. And this one, everything just stood out so well here. One particular page that i really enjoyed was the flashback to when gene and emma were trying to separate trans personality out of shan uh, yes you can see them using their abilities and then shan's ability kind of overpowers them and it's just this absolutely gorgeous use of pinks and blues and it's, it's just like wow <laughs> the way they use color to separate the past tense and the future tense the way obviously shan's powers are very like heavily pink coated so anytime she uses her powers she or the panel has been very pink coated then when you juxtapose that to when they actually get to the crucible i think my favorite actual art page is that first panel of the crucible 
where Silver Samurai's in the middle and then you've got all of these beautiful watercolored in mutants in the background. It's just so visually stunning and I, I can't get enough of it personally. Oh wow. I'm taking a really a really close look at that page right now. I'm like, oh look at all these characters that are there that I didn't notice before. You've got Shadow King in the background and Nanny and Yes. Yes and Dupe. <laughs> I know, Jupe's there. I was like, Nico had to have been at least somewhat happy to see Jupe for a panel. <laughs> but when you when you look at it, a lot of those characters actually make sense. And and I love, I think this has to be the first glimpse of Bay that we've seen in probably since Ten of Swords. And she's yes. over there just right Duggan by Bay. Oh, yeah. Using the colors as tones for the different parts of the story as well, with the pink heavy for the the Shannon Danny scenes, the the deep purple for the Cosmar scenes, because Cosmar is another character that I think really important emotional stakes in what we're seeing here. Those dark greens for the rain scenes, the light pastels for the trans scenes. What Reyes does with his watercolors is beautiful in every way, but the color coding and the managing of the tones and the action, the symmetry in the fight scenes with Danny and Shan was all something that I loved. I would love to see the script for the opening pages with Shan and Danny sitting on their rock. Oh, yeah. As they do there. The medium thing where Danny's using her powers to project trans spirit out so Shan and Tran can have a conversation. Because we know that the Vita has spoken about being a fan of Buffy and Angel stuff in the past online. And this scene was very, very reminiscent for me of the season five Willow Tara uses of magic that were explicitly stated to be the WB wouldn't allow us to show lesbian love scenes. So magic is their lesbianism. And just know that every time they're sitting together doing magic, they're having sex. And and like the sitting together and the holding hands and the everything, like I feel like the paneling or the notes or the direction on this is like very specifically like, no, 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 no. This is, this is Willow and Tara. These are those Willow and Tara magic scenes where they're doing one thing, but they're also very, very much doing another thing. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love that so much. Another thing to notice, this is that page again after you mentioned it, Kyle. Right after they go to show the Emma and Jean scene, when they show her with Xavier, he is just standing there and it's like all very monochromatic. And she looks so scared and he's like, ha ha ha, I'm going to go into your mind. It's very, Xavier is a jerk all over. (laughs) Very dreary. Yeah. Yeah. Which Xavier is a jerk. So, um, so I love the fact that they did include that data page that talks about the attempts of the separation. I, I think without that data page, it would have seemed like they just jumped right in from Shan trying to say, oh, let's have a crucible. And then she goes right into it without the actual work into it. It does set up a lot of the work for us previously before the whole existence of data pages. This would have probably been its own separate issue where they go through the attempts they go through and they realize oh cerebro reads them as separate entities so this part right here really sticks out as important it's a really great point i think we've kind of taken for granted some of the aspects of data pages at this point i know we've talked in the past over the last couple years about you know them being used as scene breaks or emotional breaks them being used you know obviously as for charts graphs as teases with redactions for future stories but also i mean not just that they're 
their info dumps. But the way that they allow the writer to adjust the pacing of the story by getting to text dump info on one page instead of having to draw out all of these different panels and scenes of these are all the different attempts so you understand it was exhausted. You know, that really would have in an era of decompressed storytelling been a whole issue. And here it's just a quick page and boom, we're moving on and it doesn't affect the pace and it doesn't feel like it's slowing down the story. It's a really good use, you know, that for these writers to be able to pick and choose when and how to control the pace and emotion of their story that um, has made the the Hoxpox era so much richer. And I think that this data page really helps to set up the difference between Shan's request to go through the crucible and Cosmar's request to go through the to go through the crucible we've seen we see here that Shan has made multiple attempts to recover trans personality so that they can put it into another body or whatever the solution would have been and all of them have failed so the only other chance that they had was to hope that by going through the resurrection process Cerebro can isolate the two personalities whereas Cosmar she just wants to go through the process because she's not happy with the way her powers have warped her. Yeah, absolutely. See, now I have I have some very strong feelings on the Cosmar thing. Uh, <laughs> I do think that this is good. I think that they needed to focus on Tran here to kind of get Danny off the hook because yeah. I was on the record at the end of last issue. This is really fucked up of Danny if Danny does this to have just dismissed Cosmar, offered no help. And I mean, and what we're clearly seeing here too is this is, Vita is giving us body dysmorphia. Vita yeah. is yeah. giving us, you know, someone who is uncomfortable living in their body. Uh, that is a very good point, and I wish I had thought about that before I brought that up. So, thank <laughs> so you. like I feel for Cosmar, like I, I, I do. feel that Cosmar is yeah. getting really. Sh- shorted here and is rightful to be angry because look Danny loves Shan and mm-hmm. it's great that she's there for Shan but the fact that she received the same request from the girl she loves and a child who is under her care and that she offered the compassion and response and attempt to help to the girl she loves and was completely dismissive to the child under her care is bothersome to me because I like Danny. Like I'm a big Danny fan. So that has not played right with me all along. And I'm hoping that we get her coming around on it. But focusing on Tran here, the fact that this isn't just about Shan, this is about bringing back a mutant that there is no other way for us to get back on Krakoa does make this different. So I'll give it that. And that's how I've been taking it. They, When Danny agreed to do this, she realized that she would be helping Tran come back to life. It, it, yes, Danny probably did, and for a lot of reasons, agree to it just because of Shan asking and when you look at maybe her reasons for agreeing to it then I can absolutely see why Cosmar would be upset. I find the idea of this use of the Crucible as better than it would have been. It it seems like from what they've been putting into this page it seems like Crucible isn't generally used for mutants who still have their powers and it's only generally reserved for mutants who don't but this seems to be sort of like a special one-off case because of the fact they have the ability to to potentially separate Tran from Shan and not knowing the answer going into it, they 
had to try it, try to do it, just to see if they could follow one of their major tenets of Krakoa, make more mutants, because you'd be making one more mutant into the world by separating the two of them. I do want to kind of tie this into Way of X. Way of X number one, where we see Pixie, and Pixie basically going and putting herself in a ridiculously dangerous situation because she hadn't died yet and wanted to be resurrected, and mutants being reckless and getting themselves resurrected. If the Crucible is not for people like Chamber and Cosmar and such, that's fine. How do you feel about comparing what we saw with Pixie to a character like Cosmar, or knowing that if the Crucible isn't used for Cosmar, are we going to go and get a reckless Cosmar death like we did with actually not just Pixie, but also Sophia in the pages of X-Factor? Yeah. That's definitely something that has worried me since Way of X came out. This whole idea of mutants kind of mimicking police-assisted suicide type of situations. Oh, exactly. It makes me very uncomfortable. I've shared a lot of your reservations about Crucible as a whole. I've, I've come around to it and this use of it, while yes, it did make me cry at the end to see Shan actually die even though I knew she was coming back in two pages because I was like, no, oh my god, what's gonna happen? But I sort of maybe fall into the line of the more established X-Men characters and I think that's what Way of X is showing us that some of the more established mutant characters that we're used to have had a hesitancy. They don't love the idea of Crucible and the cavalier deaths that mutants are going about doing, especially Storm. She went through a whole arc of giant sizes just to not die when she could have easily just given up, died, and been resurrected through the resurrection process. And and let's think, you know, because we got this through Apocalypse, right? Apocalypse was a great viewpoint for our introduction to the Crucible because the point of the Crucible was supposed to be that deaths shouldn't be reckless or easy. That just because you can be reborn, don't just give up your life life or die easy that this is going to be big and major that this is something that has to be earned that it should still be special we shouldn't just allow death to become common or cheap which is the exact opposite of what we're seeing with pixie's death and sophia's death and what potentially cosmar might attempt as a result of not being allowed in the crucible so in spirit it's really the exact opposite and i personally like i see what kyle was saying and why it made Kyle uncomfortable. I think that that's exactly what Spurrier was going for. Pixie's death, to me, was supposed to be uncomfortable because that can't be what we're going for here. Something wasn't thought out fully in the layout of the Crucible and and this design, if if this is what we're getting as a byproduct. I was very uncomfortable, personally, when I read that part of it in The Way of X, just because it was so... Not what I expected, right? I didn't expect Pixie to go out there and intentionally, almost intentionally get herself killed just to be resurrected. For cool points. I know. It's, it's. Yeah. And like you said, Josh, we are supposed to be uncomfortable with certain parts of this mutant society. There's things that they don't have to worry about. And there's things that they don't have to take into account any longer, especially as they are pretty functionally immortal at this time, at least. And it's creating a new new paradigm in just what life and death mean, which kind of actually segues us to another section of the story where the Wild Hunt kids go to the Boneyard to play with the dead bodies. And Gabby comes up, and Gabby, using her own personal experience of having been used being a clone herself, 
do you think that either side of that argument was right? Or is this something that we have to figure out along with the mutants themselves? So I thought that this was incredibly deftly written by Vita because we go into this thinking, you know, we're following Gabby and as Gabby's our point of view, we love Gabby. Gabby does no wrong. And she is a innocent, morally kind of pure character. She's a morally pure character who will murder people sometimes. <laughs> um it happens. She's she's the it best. Does. They probably she's deserve the best. it though. We love Gabby. Tom Taylor did such a fantastic job of kind of creating that that balance and uh, and Vita has picked up on it perfectly in in both Prisoner X and here in this title. So we go in following and supporting Gabby and we come out more confused than we were when we went in. And I don't know that either of the kids are right or either of the kids are wrong. I think that they're kids and there's some moral points on both sides but they're confused and they don't really know what they're doing. And yeah, like the criticisms against Gabby are valid and Gabby's concerns are also valid. There's valid points on both sides and Vita did a really good job of not just allowing us to be like, no, bad kids, bad Anole, bad Cosmo. That there's valid emotions here. And, and some of it goes to the Reyes art paired with it that we're seeing emotions on these characters' faces. They're not just kind of laying out these logical arguments for you to accept or not these are coming from places of feelings and and all of these characters feelings in this kind of messy scenario are valid and talk about perfect adolescence <laughs> this is adolescence <laughs> just a bunch of messy yep. feelings and nobody's right <laughs> but it's all valid and just a, a really great job of, of writing because we we don't get this you don't get this type of i don't want to say both sidesism but just messy truth too often in comics i see both sides i feel like i side more with gabby just from more of the outside experience of knowing the characters and knowing shadow king mm -hmm. But I feel for Cosmar. I feel for Annalie. I feel for, what is it, Rainboy? Yeah. Yeah. And and No Girl. I mean, No Girl's been sitting in her little floaty brain vat since uh, since uh, New X-Men. Yep. And nobody's done anything to try to help her with that. I think adding No Girl to that argument was the point that really drove it home to me. And, yes. and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't see the pain that Cosmar was going going through as anything more than maybe an extension of her mutant powers. I think sometimes we just assume that that's how their powers were supposed to manifest to go. Like with Chamber, as many times as he has blown a hole in his chest, I assume that that's just how he is supposed to be with the hole in his chest. Mm -hmm. Cosmar, having been introduced to us as this distorted caricature of a character, who is she still so adorable though, but I, I get why she wouldn't want to live in that body. But when you break it down to the no girl thought and you realize no girl had a body she had a life before and humans took her brain out of her body and made her a floating hoverboard or whatever you want to say it is and she is just stuck in her life as a floating brain it, it really no it's fucked up that they don't let no girl go into the crucible yeah oh god yeah i mean 
mean, that is insane. And then by Vita making that point, it made me realize, hey, you know, maybe we only saw Cosmar really use her powers and that's what she became. Maybe that's not how her powers were supposed to transform her body. Maybe Cosmar has the same thing. And then it made me think about Anole and his arm. So if Anole came back, would he choose to have his arm back to the same size as the other arm? Would he, like, how would that go? And same with Rainboy, where he says, all I want to do is be able to touch something because he's just a pool of liquid in human form. It really framed the argument in a way I could understand. Let's go back to something else as well here. I won't bring in another character. Let's talk about Monet Saint-Croix. Monet oh, Saint-Croix. Okay. Okay. We got no explanation of what happened to Monet Saint-Croix. This is M. Mm-hmm. We just know that she was M, right? The last we had seen her was at the end when she was being unempathed and kind of coming back to normal after taking on the vampire-sucking, mutant marrow vampire-sucking badness of her brother in Cullen Bunn's Uncanny. Christina Strange fixed that and made her better at the end of Generation X Volume 2. And then we get her in House of and suddenly she has powers to transform back and forth into the penance. And are these learned powers? Because the penance form was not part of her mutant powers. It's kind of been implied that these are post-resurrection. So was M just a lot like Monet Saint-Croix, who has been described as her body being perfect probably a thousand times in explicit text on the page that she was allowed to crucible to get these powers or that she was allowed to come back with the ability to change body forms but Anole can't but no girl can't but Cosmar can't we know Chamber too there's a great issue of Generation X the first time Sync takes Chamber's powers and uses them and Chamber's just stunned because Sync uses them better than he does and Sync doesn't blow a hole in his face and chamber realizes like mother fucker like if i had <laughs> known what i was doing at all i would have a mouth hmm. wow why are these characters still suffering when others are given new abilities to change form m is probably the top example we now know from x core that m and angel they have hulk powers now where they get angry and they turn into these alternate forms so they can use them for fighting and combat like why can't Anale have that like why why do only the pretty <laughs> rich mutants get to do that designer jeans okay <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> were you gonna were you gonna say something kyle i'm sorry no 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 <laughs> my brain is broken from that pun I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay <laughs> continue <laughs> so there's two things with that they do address that when you do come back when you are resurrected that your body does do a reset because in that moment it sort of knows how to use its powers a little bit more than when you initially when your powers were initially activated yes we've seen that that has so been we've seen that. and but... we also know that you can ask for designer genitalia <laughs> very true <laughs> We've seen that. That's yes. been in text as well. I will point out that I'm I'm very surprised that Shan decided to keep her bionic leg. I've seen a lot of well, a lot of chatter on it online on X Twitter. I will say I get why people would say that she wouldn't have wanted to keep the bionic leg, but I know from a decision choice, it was the right decision to make to have her keep the bionic leg because yes, it's 
still giving the visibility. It is Marvel saying you don't have to feel like you are not a person for this disability. It's not something that we're going to kill this character off and have them come back without it. Yes. Um, I, I'm glad we got to see it explicit here with Shan because I know Shan's one of the characters it came up with and some of us weren't sure what would happen when Shan died. I feel very strongly that when we get a Forge resurrection, Forge absolutely is going to come back the way he was. Like, I think that Forge's lost limbs are a part of who he is. And I don't mm-hmm. think that he would. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Take them back. Yeah. Like, I feel most confident about him. But, you know, each character to their own in terms of what makes them feel whole or who they are. I mean, that's that's a personal journey to be respected in how the story is told. And so I do like the touch that Shan chose this, that this is clearly something that she chose uh, as how she wanted to come back. It does seem to be, like you were saying, Josh, a personal decision because Xavier, now that he is back in his own body, he decided to come back as a man with fully functional legs versus where most of his publication history, he's been a disabled man in a wheelchair, which I think speaks to his ego some. But Well, it also mm-hmm. kind of fluctuates with him because he gained the, the use of his legs at some point during through uh, Shi'ar technology. They cloned his body. They had to clone his body to put his brain in after the Brood Saga. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think also when he took over Phantom X's body. Yes, he came back in Astonishing with Phantom X's body as well. Although he resurrected into his own body after the first issue of X-Force in the Hotbox era. So That is true. He's no longer in Phantom X's body and he did choose to come back with legs. I mean, I think we can all agree Xavier is a top. And (laughs) I mean, so for... For his relationship with Eric, having legs or, you know, having full use of his uh, lower extremities is going to be important for that relationship. Wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me you think Magneto's the bottom in that relationship? Xavier is not a bottom. You cannot convince me Xavier is a bottom. He is too goddamn selfish. Not that all tops are selfish, but that most selfish gays are tops. <laughs> wow I'm speechless here. Oh. Am I gonna have to break out the break out the card table with a little sign like prove me wrong? Like we're gonna <laughs> I, I imagine you out there now with that. I imagine you out there a lot. So, but, this is, but I just don't see Magneto being the bottom. Maybe they're two sides. I don't know. I would have thought they would at least been like That is first. the one problem in their relationship is that they are both tops for different. I mean, so they've got to be. Someone's got to verse. Yeah, somebody's got to be the verse. Like, so I, I always assumed it was Charles. Because, okay. Uh, so when we get back to the crucible, here. Shan hesitates. She's not sure what Tran is going to be like once he is brought back to life. She doesn't trust where he is. We do actually get a nice little flashback to see some moments where Shan and Tran were actually happy as brothers and sisters, which was really nice to see because all that we've seen of Shan's previous life was pain and suffering. So it was really nice to see some nice moments of just happiness and joy together. When Shan finally realizes she needs to complete the crucible and Danny gives her the death blow, they do have have a moment that I know we've talked about this earlier, but really seems to almost cement the fact that Danny and Shan are some sort of lovers. 
Danny tells uh, Shan in Vietnamese, I've got you. And then she tells Shan she can rest. That is right after Shan tells Danny, if this is the last thing I see, I'm glad it's your fate, basically, in paraphrasing there. And Danny says, you're a fucking charmer. Um, (laughs) Uh... Is there any other way to read this scene besides the way I'm reading? Like, can you guys think of a possible answer? No, 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 I know that's that's exactly how I read it. (laughs) Back to my notes on this issue. Shane and Danny are absolutely fucking. I am trying to think of the straight explanation for this and I cannot see it. I think one of the things that speaks to me about Shan is the way she seems to go about relationships. So a few times Shan's been shown having an actual attraction towards somebody. Shan seems to form the really strong emotional bond between somebody wherein the relationship is more about the emotional rather than the physical and the physicality of it. I think at this point, even if Danny isn't into Shan, which there's no way she's not this point but Shean is absolutely 100% in a relationship with Danny even if Danny's not oh absolutely <laughs> yeah Shan is very much like a boss bitch like when we see her in non-amorous or, or in just strictly platonic or professional standpoints like she has been essentially the mother of her younger children like having to be the boss in charge taking care of people from a very young age she is very kind of driven cut to the chase none of your bullshit like getting business done we see that in dead souls we see it through new mutants and the various runs like but like you said she's very different when she's in relationships she almost becomes kind of cute bashful deferent like she's much more playful with people and that's the shan that we've gotten with danny and their one-on-one adventures over the last six issues or five issues that's the shan that we've been seeing with danny here wildly contrasted from the way that we see shan with the younger kids in the wild hunt with the way that we saw her with directing iliana as team leader in dead souls with the way that we see her just as in in rose and cammy so yeah like this is this is really relationship shan all the way and you know danny's not doing anything to shake her off <laughs> hey danny is taking her on double dates with north star and kyle okay so... right <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just uh, have an issue where mutants go on dates with each other? <laughs> do you know how much those I are my favorite issues? What was it? Was it is it X Men twenty four? Is that the one where Rogue and Gambit go on the date? Like that issue is one of my absolute favorite issues. It was right after Ileana dies in three hundred four, and there's just so much emotional depth into that. And I would love for them to bring that into this Krakoan era, even if they have to do like a silly like Marvel X Men Heartbreakers kind of thing where they mm-hmm. have like whole just valentine's episode i think there's one big thing we haven't talked about yet when we're looking at the shan resurrection and the final parts of the shan story here um and this was something that i was really surprised by like really i was like flipping back and forth through pages to make sure i didn't miss it after all of this we do not see or get any reference of tran in the final pages of this yeah i noticed that too the only thing that we get is storm saying that shan is her own woman again yeah so we know that shan has been separated but we don't know that tran has been now here is interesting thought i had 
about that. And I know we talked about this last episode, Josh. Where does Sinister get the DNA for Tran? Because Tran died way before he was a known entity into the whole scene. Uh, I thought they hand waved that in Hawks Pox when we saw a scene from like way, way, way back in the day when we got a scene uh, in House of X. From or Powers of Ten from way early back in the Eric Magneto kind of relationship time where they went and visited Sinister and asked Sinister to start collecting like all the mutant DNA. That scene I thought was supposed to predate New Mutants. Oh. He used John Proudstar. Didn't he use the yes. original Thunderbird? Yep. John Proudstar yep. DNA for himself. He, he make did. himself a mutant, which is how we got mutant Sinister. He did. He did. So I, I thought a lot of that was hand waved. Like, we're going to set this way back before everything else so we can say that Sinister collected all these mutants' DNAs. Don't think too hard about it. Okay. Maybe that's what it is. And I'm, I'm sure Charles gave him some sort of version of Cerebro to detect mutants so he could, like, do his little, like, stealthy, like, I'm going to jab you and get your DNA kind of thing. DNA, Sinister, Sinister is the system. <laughs> <laughs> Sinister collecting DNA samples. That's an interesting story. <laughs> that's a story I want to see. My, my last thing I really want to talk about is the amazing data page at the end where Ileana writes to Charles, where she basically tells him, you fucked up, but we're going to do better. Mm -hmm. What is your guys' thoughts on that beautifully misspelled, typo-filled, love fest of a data page? So I loved it. It has a great magic feel to it. We know that she doesn't have the best schooling, so it really reflects that. Blasco Dim didn't cover a lot of English no. grammar with her. No. Her years <laughs> well, also, English isn't her first language, so... My only concern about it is that from a lettering point of view, it is difficult to read. I know that that's on purpose, but there were some times when I struggled to understand what was being said. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing we got with Jimmy's diary and other things. You know, trying to make these more personal and unique and handwritten mm. is going to lose some accessibility, which was a double-edged sword. So I, I I'm not sure exactly where I feel or fall on that because accessibility good, but also, I mean, yeah, we don't want to homogenize. I agree. My big thing yep. that I, I mean, I love the last line, you know, you gave us this job so we could do better than you. So we will. But then even after that, I love that Ileana signs her name magic because she thinks of herself as magic. Mm -hmm. She thinks of herself yep. as M-A-G-I-K, the queen of limbo. That is her name. It kind of goes back to like the cartoon of like, uh, the little comic strip of Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman all holding the lasso of truth. Or Wonder Woman's like, I'm Diana of the Mascara. And Superman's like, I am Kal-El of Krypton. And Batman goes, I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> like, she thinks of herself as magic. Like that is yeah. That is who she is. And and so I like that was my little I love that that's how she signs her name. I love that it cements the feeling that the new mutants really see themselves as a family. We really haven't gotten that from Xavier's point of view, really from any of the the original X-Men or the giant size X-Men. They were teammates, but the new mutants, they were family. All just goddamn like how neglectful and how much shit happened to them like oh my god Xavier yes magneto's watch oh like, <laughs> like no 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 like we have all of these kids here like no 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 like they ain't going through the shit that you put us through mm-hmm 
Yeah. Oh, talking about some of the stuff they went through in between Magneto and Charles, I did love how Vita referenced the fact that Shan had spent years training with the sword. That is something we don't see a lot of people bring up, but I love that part of the Crucible. So real quick, where do you guys see this going as a story? I personally see some sort of confrontation coming up between Shan and Amalfaruk. I there there has to be at some point something, some word said between them this the focus on Shian and the focus on Amafaruk I feel is leading to some eventual confrontation I know Josh is hoping for a reformation forum I'm sort of leaning along the lines of Gabby was the cult but that remains to be seen I love this page and we didn't talk about this page yet with Rain bringing Gabby to Farouk because to me this continues along the Farouk redemption story here that we're talking about. Rain knows that Gabby has suspicions and that Gabby's unsure. I don't think we just saw Rain lead Gabby to the slaughter. I think that Rain kind of came around and now Gabby's going to come around. And I think that we're going to slowly see these. And look, Shan has some history and emotional baggage that needs to be dealt with here. Shan and Farouk, there's some shit there. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think we're going to get that split of the Shadow King and Farouk. I think that what we're kind of building to here is getting the Farouk redemption, getting the understanding that this is a different person, that this is not the Shadow King, and how the new mutant kids, who are some of the ones who were most traumatized by him, will, you know, have to come to accept and, and move forward with that. Shan more than anyone. I think the bigger confrontation that I'm more looking forward to is the Cosmar-based one. Mm, I think that, yeah. you know, we have something with Cosmar and those other kids, they are unsettled, that all of these new mutants, Ilyana and Jimmy and Danny and Shan, that they all and Rain need to be able to find a way to help and guide them better. And I think that there's definitely something's going to break in that Cosmar story. Like something's got to give with the way that one's going. Yeah, definitely. Something's got to give at some point. And it definitely feels like things are starting to come to a head with, with that I absolutely loved how Warpath is kind of taking on this mentor persona towards Gabby and how he was like, I'm sure that this is hypothetical, but if you need any help, then we're here for you. Yes, I love that we got to see that instead of, I know the last issue, we really only got to see that in a data page where he was talking about uh, wanting to try to help Warlock because Warlock was just linking around the island and that was like adorable, but we actually got to see him on panel do that in this page, in this issue, and I love that. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here one more time. Now in this next segment, Rod, Raven, Nathan, and myself sit down to talk about Reptile Number 1. This is an important issue, not just in a sense for honoring continuity and young characters that some of today's readers might have grown up with, but also of representing Latin American families and how they exist in this country. It's not enough just to say this character is Latino, it's important to show it, and Terry Bloss went to great effort to make this feel as natural to the Latin experience as possible. We hope you guys enjoy. And if you guys like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see. So don't forget to head on over to Twitter, YouTube, and Patreon to subscribe at X's for Podcast over on YouTube, where we've launched the Daily X, bringing you daily segments all about your favorite comics. Until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see you at the gala. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next segment of X's for Podcast. I am Rod. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Rod, the. And today we have with us the Ravenous Raven. 
Hello, darlings. It's Raven, aka Dame Red Bento, and you can find me on uh, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram. I'm kind of all over the place. It's D A M E R E D B E N T O. And with us, we also have the incredibly naughty Nathan. Ooh, naughty. Hello, it's Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. And next, we have the equally naughty Nico. Hey, guys, this is Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N on Instagram and Twitter. And yes, if you're wondering, of those actions. (laughs) (laughs) And today we are talking about Reptile, issue number one. The writer was Terry Blas with pencils by Enid Balam. The anchor was Victor Olabaza with colorist Carlos Lopez. Of course, lettering by Virtual Calligraphy with Joe Sabino on duty this issue. Cover art by Paco Medina and Frederico Blee. Plus, we have variant covers by the incredible Mike Del Mundo and Arnada Souza. Nicely done. That was perfect. Every now and then break up my Cuban just a little bit. <laughs> And Nico, you said you knew everything about Reptile down to his birth. Let's give a little recap of him. <laughs> yeah, so I love Reptile way too much. It's just one of the things that I do. Uh, he came in at exactly the right time in my fandom. And so what most people might not realize is Reptile is a character who has had a rather high profile, but highly underwhelming past. Now, for a character who had gotten so much attention from Marvel at the time of his initial launch, he's actually kind of faded into obscurity. The character has only had about 63 total appearances since his original creation way back in Avengers the Initiative featuring Reptile number 1, there's a title, from 2009. Now, initially, the character was written by Christos Gage and an issue with pencils by Steve Yu. But what's great there is the cover artist was Humberto Ramos. So we are still seeing some amazing Latin representation in this title between Gage and Humberto. And then he would go on to appear in fan favorite Avengers Academy. Now, of that 63 appearances or 61 appearances of this character, 40 something are Avengers Academy. He would go on to have 18 appearances in the likes of Avengers Arena. Plus some small tie-ins like Enter the Heroic Age, an issue of Thunderbolts that tied into Avengers Academy, as well as an issue of Avengers Solo, plus a brief stint hanging out with the amazing Spider-Man. He would resurface in the pages of Iron Man 600, as well as a notable appearance in King in Black, Spider-Man number one earlier this year by friend of the show Jed McKay. So considering the guys only had one appearance in the last three years, this miniseries by a high-profile Latinx writer with an amazing art team is just such a like such a gift because Reptile has just sort of disappeared for quite a while. Essentially, Reptile is an amazingly kind of a one-of-a-kind character. He was part of the entire like more diversity initiative before there was a more diversity initiative. Like Raven, were you even aware mm-hmm. this character was a thing? I had, I had heard rumblings of this character, but I thought it was like something that they were going to work up to make a book in the future. I honestly, <laughs> I honestly thought that this was like like sort of the first appearance, and that they had just been a background character that had occasionally popped up in other books, and this was what they were leading to eventually. But yeah, I didn't know that like they had that many appearances, and that they were like a like a reoccurring character in all these different books. I did not know that. 
I see. That's what I love about the start of this reptile number one is that even if people haven't read, you know, not really long history of reptile, but you know, the history that he did have so far, you didn't really have to. I mean, you should because they're good books. But you know, Terry Blast updates you on basically everything that the kid has gone through between the relationships and experimentations and all the fights and being part of teams and breaking up and almost dying. You get all that in like a two page spread. And then you're caught up. Now, Rod, how much of that had you had experience with? Are you like a, are you like a big reptile guy, like a minor reptile guy, like a reptilish guy? <laughs> I'm a re- I'm a reptilish guy because I haven't read. I have all the volumes of Avengers Academy. I haven't read all of it all the way through. I've been meaning to. It's on the back burner. But I read all of like um, the arena and the aftermath of that. And reptile always interests me because first of all, it's a lot next character. We don't have that many in Marvel. And I just love dinosaurs. <laughs> and we don't have that many dinosaur characters at all anyway. Like we have, you know, we have the evil one that likes to turn people, all your body into dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> Cetron. Wait, so- Sauron. Sauron. Yeah. I was like, Sauron. Sauron. And then like, who else do we have that really is like dinosaur, dinosaur in the Marvel universe? And you know it's what? I'm going to say. Stegman. I'm, Ryan no. Stegman, if nothing else. But I'm going to huh. say that, you know, honestly, the only only reason I'm going to entertain this sort of like where's the dino rep is because we do such a good job calling for overall representation <laughs> that this one time this level of absurdity <laughs> makes so much sense. Yeah, no, no. We don't have, it's not like Beastmasters. We don't have enough dinosaurs here. It's a bummer. We really, I mean, dinosaurs were all over the earth at one point, or supposedly, I believe so. I mean, we have the evidence. Um, <laughs> so, so it make like, how do we not have more people? you know into like dinosaur powers i mean people get powers from the earth all the time from explosions from experiments all that stuff from the earth from sentinels and all that that's how the mutants were technically created how do we not have more dinosaur shit yeah we should have like five kids who get power cords that get to turn into dinosaurs (laughs) we think it's the juvenilia of it do we think it's the possibility that because dinosaurs are something that's taught to children and we so closely associate it with like a childish ideology. I mean, you know, they were savage beasts that roamed the land for millions of fucking years. I'm not calling them kids stuff, but like we peddle dinosaurs at kids. So yeah. perhaps there's yeah. a fear that, you know, like I've always thought the fact that they were able to make the lantern color core happen is the greatest thing ever because it basically they were like, what if crayons just started fucking fighting it out? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's really <laughs> what they did with the color. And I have all nine rings. Don't get me wrong. But like that's really what they said. They were like, what if your crayon box got into a real pissy fit with itself? And I wonder if the fear of, like, you know, being like, hey, super dinosaurs, guys, is that people are going to be like, "Mm, those super dinosaurs are for kids. They're eating adults, but they're for kids. Well, like, don't forget we have, like, a whole land where dinosaurs still exist. And every time they go into Savage Land, they... I thought you meant Jurassic Park! Yeah! Well, no, I was thinking, like, are, we, are we talking the RNC here? Like, are we making a political joke? Or... I'm talking about the famous Marvel place where dinosaurs still exist. Oh, Nathan, I understood. It's like, it's either a Republican thing or you're making a Democratic joke because there is a gem- Democratic joke when you're a Democrat in name only, they call you a dino. Uh, <laughs> so, I was like, wait, what? What about the Midwest? <laughs> I know, like, whoa, how, did, how did we jump this year? 
or this Megadon, no. I should say. <laughs> okay, so there is a whole land where dinosaurs still exist called the Savage Land, okay? Oh, okay. Remember, oh, remember, we're an X-Men podcast, maybe. <laughs> this is <laughs> brand new information. <laughs> and the X-Men have, like, been to Savage Land so many times. Magneto lived there for a while. That's where mutates came from. But they, whenever they go to the Savage Land, they always treat it as a fun, campy romp instead yeah. of, like, a really serious story. Well, I mean, you you have to recognize, like, exactly what Nico said, where, uh, you know, friggin' we do peddle this to kids, but also, like, a lot of our, um, a lot of our movies and, like, TV shows back in, like, the 80s, late 90s, early 2000s, like Dinosaurs, um, was very much, again, peddled towards kids. There was a lot of, like, comedies. There was a couple of cartoons that were dinosaur-based, but they were all friendly dinosaurs and nice dinosaurs and kids' dinosaurs. You know, between Bernie, um, Land Before Time, dinosaurs, uh, just all this other stuff, we, we peddled dinosaurs to nerds and small children. <laughs> And and not really too much in between. So well, even yeah, even uh, Beto's cousin Julian says, "Oh my God, you have the power that every kid would want to have to be any dinosaur." So right? they are at least acknowledging in there that you know dinos do tend to be aimed towards kids. All right, well then mm-hmm. let me ask a question: What dinosaur would everyone want to be? I would either want to be uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex for you know, so I could be like the Red Ranger, whatever. I have I have needs, or I would want to be a dinosaur like Ed Asner. I want to say really, Nico, because you know you are Latinx. How did you feel about this book being unapologetically you know Latinx? They're speaking Spanish. They're not translating. They're you know they're talking with their family. They're showing their relationships. Like how did you feel about all that? All right, so this book. Has- had probably one of the most honest moments that I've ever read. You know when like you you hear something and you're like, ah, that actually speaks my in my code, right? That has such an element of honesty to it. When they said that Disneyland is the Mexican Disneyland, that was the most honest motherfucking thing I have ever read in my entire life. And, you know, so like knowing Terry, having been lucky enough to sell alongside him at Comic Cons and like kind of gotten to like watch him become this amazing superstar right like knowing him and knowing how hard he strives to make something authentic i went into this expecting this to feel very like home to me not only was this going to be a a latinx experience but it's going to be a latinx experience from a voice i knew i don't want to say intimately but like you know personally but the thing about it that's amazing is you know terry immediately transports you to this mexican family and it's it's personal and it's one of a kind and you know Lin-Manuel Miranda had just made the most amazing quote the other day where he was asked about the Latinx term debate and he said well this is what happens when you try to define 32 unrelated countries with one fucking word and He's like, you know, when I was in college, the debate was, is it Latino or is it Hispanic? And now we understand that Hispanic was promoted because of Hispanic. And we understand that the etymology on the word is somewhat hateful. So, you know, we don't go with that word anymore. And we're going to keep evolving it. But, you know, part of the problem being a white nation predominantly in terms of the enculturation and the design of the nation is that it has a tendency to believe its interpretation of these things is correct. And, uh, you know, part of the problem is that Latinx 
the X is a very American English idea standing for the unknown variable. And that's not how Spanish languages work. That's not how Latin languages work. And that's why, you know, there's such a call for Latin instead of Latin X, but you know, then that just looks like Latin and it looks like a, the, the same problem of defining 32 nations with one fucking term. So all of that said, my Latin isn't anybody else's Latin, isn't, you know, it's it's such a one-of-a-kind personal thing. So for me to be able to open this book and feel represented in a way that I don't feel alienated my Cuban identity was, it was really special. It was really personal. It was like the comic book equivalent of One Day at a Time, which is the most honest Latin X experience in the history of television ever, bar none, ever in the history of the world. And <laughs> this was opening that book. This was exactly that. Good. I like it. That is. I do want to ask. So I always say, so I say Latin more than Latinx because I, I want to say I'm not, I'm not Latino. I'm not Latinx. I'm not Latin. I'm not any of that. So I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing. Well, it's like the queer LGBTQIA debate. That's why, like, I always mess up when I say LGBTQIA because I always refer to us as the queer community. So it, you can't really, def- it's hard. Wow. Yeah. I mean, as long as you say it with reverence and respect and you say, if that is not the right term, I'm so sorry that that term has offended you. Please tell me the term I should use to refer to your culture when I'm with you so that I can be, you know, respectful and honor where you came from. As long as you always have that in your heart, which I know you do, mm-hmm. you, you can't. Can't really misstep too badly as long as you're always ready to interact with a person about how they experience their culture over how you want to experience it. And that's yeah. really the heart of inclusion and diversity as a study of togetherness. Yeah, it's Good. it's it's much like when you have the black community or the African American community or people of color. Like some people just think that those are all very much interchangeable and they are super not. And certain people, like, they only want to be called Black, or they only want to be called African American, or they only want to be called, you know, a person of color, or, you know, whatever else. You have to be willing to be very flexible, um, because how I identify may not be how somebody else who looks like me identifies. So, yeah, it's just like, what are you most comfortable with? Let's go with that. So, yeah, but I, I did, I loved this book in a lot of ways because I do have a lot of, um, you know, Latin friends, Mexican friends, friends from all over the place who have, you know, Latin backgrounds. And, oh my God, it, it honestly felt like I was kind of sitting next to them and listening to a conversation I'm like, holy shit, it's like, oh my God, yeah, these are my friends. I, I, I understand at least part of this interaction that's going on because I've actually seen it in real life with my friends. So it was, it was really nice opening that up and seeing that it felt really true to, you know, the diaspora. I used to take the train from Oceanside to Anaheim, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, To get to Mm -hmm. Disneyland, right? So like, it felt to me like taking the train from Oceanside, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yes, that's what it felt like. Yeah, 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 dead on. <laughs> and I feel like that's what the magic of this first issue really hit is that, you know, it wasn't all just action. We did have action more towards the end, and it was really um, drawn and colored well by the artist, 
But for most of the book, it's just a conversation. It's them talking. It's us getting to know Reptile, uh, a character a lot of people probably didn't even know before this book even came out because Avengers Academy came out a while ago. A lot of people didn't read that, unfortunately, um, or just for, I forgot about him. So this really gave us a chance to see him as a character, see him around his family or around, you know, non-powered people well, so far. Because, you know, as we see in the issue that his, you know, his cousin might have powers after all. But <laughs> before that, though, we get to see him really just interact with his family and how the character just is. This is really a good character finding issue. And I feel like all I saw was praise for this issue online, like how it stuck to its Spanish roots with not translating and how everyone really got to know the character that didn't get to know him and i feel like even raven you didn't know this character at all and you said you love this book and you like this character now so i feel like it did its job well yeah well and and in this particular comic i love the fact they did not translate the spanish at all because i live here in california and i actually live rather close to uh the los angeles area so hearing spanglish or hearing um interjected bits of spanish between people is so common like so so common that you honestly pick up spanish whether you want to or not which i often want to because i'm like <laughs> i gotta be able to talk to some of these people because i need certain things and uh it was great hearing that but also they went to one of my favorite places in los angeles which is santee alley slash the fabric district and yeah this is this is my stomping grip i i might have had one or two things i would have changed in there but that's only because i go to the fabric district like on a very regular basis so i'm just like wait you're not a short guatemalan man who scales to the top of these is that even supposed to be like legally like no oh god dude don't die don't die don't die okay he's got my fabric yay uh, actually guys real quick we just got we just got a user letter one of our short Guatemalan listeners said, hey. <laughs> that was quick. That was <laughs> They're spying on us. We have stalkers now. We made it. <laughs> no, dude, if, you have, if you've ever been to Los Angeles, like the people who are running your front of house um, are usually Persian, Iranian, uh, Jewish. Uh, sometimes they are um, Latin and you can very much tell that they are. But like the people who usually go and get your fabric are these tiny, lightweight, usually, I can only tell because of the frickin', um, the accent. <laughs> yes, by, by now, I've actually learned how to tell a certain accent part, but yeah, they're either um, usually uh, Guadalajaran or Honduran, um, or Guatemala, I'm sorry, Guatemalan or Honduran, and oh my god, they scale these, like, 20-foot-high scaffoldings packed with fabric, and just bring them down out of nowhere. They dive into like the hidey holes between the bolts and come out with random things that you needed. It's amazing to watch. And that's why I love going to the fabric district because you can find anything there. But yeah, I, I loved the fact they had Santee Alley because that is a main staple for that area. So this, this was like, this was like literally walking into my stomping grounds and I loved it. I want to say one of the things that I liked is Terry Blass bringing in a new villain that we don't know yet, mm -hmm. um, because I do like getting a lot of new villains. We get some new heroes. I want new villains as well. We get too many mm -hmm. overused villains. 
And we don't see many villains have a rock ability. So that's really interesting. And it looks like it's a magic as well. And Nathan, one of the things I love about you is you like, I feel like obscure, randomly powered <laughs> characters. <laughs> so how did you feel about this new villain? Oh my God. I, I loved it. I loved um, the intrigue, the way that Terry Bless brought them in. I am hooked. I, I want to know how they knew exactly where Reptile was. Right. Like how, like how he knows everything about him. Like how does he know where his parents are? Or does he really know where his parents are? You know, is it a supervillain trick? Or, or is it one of his parents transformed? Like, mm. because like just the fact that he knew so much about them, I'm like him. I was like, oh my God. Um, and those like rock creatures, like who doesn't fucking love a rock creature to like <laughs> try to take something down? Um, I... <laughs> I'm so I, I... sorry. Um, okay, Nathan, I... it seems like your point is off to a kind of rocky start. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I didn't mean okay. to put you off in Stonewall, you there. I'm sorry. Oh, oh. This whole thing is just on the rocks right now. Okay. Nobody I know it died at Stonewall, y'all. Nobody it died is. at Stonewall. Hey, it is Pride Month. <laughs> happy Pride Month. Yay, happy Pride Month. Happy Pride. <laughs> and I did mean to say that. It's June 1st. We're recording this. It's a gay book with a bunch of gay people. You know, it's 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 a great time to be queer or LGBTQIA. I you know, T. I want everyone to feel LGBTQIA. <laughs> that's because that's what it is it's pride month and everybody should yeah. feel free no matter what your letter is just come on in you know not no offense not straight but like um <laughs> that's not a letter that's a condition yeah right <laughs> but, no, no, and you know straight allies are always welcome if, if the a is ally oh, you know always welcome but you know pride uh, is about every letter being included so that's not me mm-hmm. being a dismissive alphabet soup hand wave the, the a is for asexual aromantic aces yeah ally yes. is the unspoken it's the unspoken no. a it's the au mm-hmm. we love allies but you're not part of the letters but anyway Thank um <laughs> okay so when Reptile saves the little kid from being stoned to death, like, that is, like, the best part of, the, like, I love that. Like, oh because, God, yes. like, the way he uses his tail to, like, whap the rocks away, it's so amazing. Uh, Such a good book. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's built so well for, like, young adults and maybe even kids without being childish. I think that's what made me so, so freaking happy because I'm like, I like the nitty gritty adult stuff because I'm a nitty gritty adult. But I also like seeing that there's stuff out there that younger readers can get into and not be necessarily exposed right away to the nitty gritty stuff. I love this kind of stuff because it gets them excited about, you know, comic books and it eases them into the, oh my goodness, these wonderfully complex characters Mm -hmm. yes i love i love that like there's some books that i'd love to read like moon girl and devil dinosaurs i'm sure it's a great book but i am well out of the target demographic for it Mm -hmm. i'm far too old and it's written for a much younger reader this book was obviously written for to skew younger but it wasn't written solely that way so Mm -hmm. that older readers can enjoy it um so i I love it when they are able to do that in a book It's, it's a really amazing thing I do like so. Did we think uh, Beto's cousin Julian was that untucked reference? Is he supposed to be part of the uh, LGBTQIA community or girl? If he's not a part of our community, <laughs> I will eat my own damn jean shorts. Like, come on, you could probably make a lot of money doing that. So, like, make sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> Make sure you video that, okay? <laughs> I, I mean, definitely the, will. <laughs> the body language, the mm. the speech. I mean, the way he his, his mannerisms. Yeah, the, his the room. stuff that he designed, like just everything about him, breeds wonderful young queer person i know i love it i was so happy to see that i was like mm -hmm. i was like oh my god please don't let me be the only one to see that right it, it gives me so much hope when i see something like that like people don't understand how difficult it can be to be young and see absolutely zero representation of yourself or when you see representation of yourself it is in the most negative light in you know that you're weak and that you yeah. you can't do anything you can't stand up that that you you have no worth in this world and instead of seeing all this anger and angst aimed at a queer coded character you see this loving accepting family and just this that. is how they do and it oh oh that made me so happy on so yes. many levels i'm so tired of the the queer narrative being like every movie out there is about oh my god here's a horrible coming out story like that's mm -hmm. what it seems like to me i'm so tired of that and i just want to see like this i want to see a loving accepting family just out yes. there just they, they still love him he's he's their family they, whatever mm -hmm. he's 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 lgbtqia who cares whatever we still love you that's you're it. still part of us exactly and i do like that i don't know if they did this on purpose um but you know when they were out and about he was the one that was you know talking to everyone getting the materials you know making the first initiative getting the you know ice cream for them and everything he wasn't the like meek and you know shy one he was the more um adversive one mm -hmm. it's probably the word that i'm using right aversive uh, uh extrovert extrovert extroverted yeah, yeah. <laughs> extroverted one Ooh, my vocabulary uh so <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose or, but I mean, it, I really enjoyed that. You know, he looks like he's probably the youngest, but he is the more extroverted one. And mm -hmm. hopefully we get a good backstory or just not a tragic one. You know, we don't have to oh, yeah. much more because the book's not about him, but just keep him happy. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. I hope he gets powers too, like his sister. So, oh, that would be, that'd be cool. When it, oh, I love the fact that he was coded, but they never had to say it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of representation I want to see where you can, where you can say it without having to say it explicitly per mm -hmm. se and it's just like it is it just is you just exist there's nothing noteworthy of you you just exist you're a part of the story but it's also noteworthy because you're just part of the story i'm like yeah and I you can it. express the gayness that way like it's not about mm -hmm. like i'm here to tell you i just came out and i'm singing it to you because that's how gay right. i am like it's <laughs> i'm gay experience right it's, you know, I think back to like one of the touchstones of, of, of queer identity, right? There's like just a couple of shows every now and then that like hit gayness in like the, the, just the most artful way. And there's the episode of Golden Girls with Dorothy's friend, Jean. And oh, yeah. there's that mm -hmm. incredible sequence where she says, you know, <laughs> um, Blanche is not gay. Because the whole confusion thing, and it's, it's in B. Arthur's deep voice, so I always just hear, mm -hmm. Blanche is not gay. And like, <laughs> that like resonant bravado kind of sound. And whenever uh, a, a movie or TV show goes to pull back on the gayness of something, that's what I hear. Blah, 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 <laughs> it's not gay. 
But when I need to think about a representation of gayness that was the gayest fucking thing that was so real to me, my entire world was changed. I think about the episode of Master of None, Thanksgiving, that Lena wrote about being, uh, Lena Waithe wrote about being a, a queer woman and a queer woman of color. And what a landmark for television it was that it won all of these awards. And when we think back to previous statements of gayness in fiction and gayness in media, we can also look at a specific episode of Designing Women. Now, I'm using Designing Women in particular because while it is a very sub- a very subversive show in a lot of ways, it tried to be subversive among a conservative group, which is rarely as subversive as it is pointing to the problem. And mm-hmm. one of the things it got very right was the creator, Linda Bloodsworth, Thomas's mother in real life had very sadly contracted AIDS from a blood transfusion she had during a surgery. And when she was going to visit her mother one day, she overheard a Southern debutante woman say, well, you know, that disease is killing all the right people. And that was a very common phrase to say about HIV in the 1980s. And Designing Women did an episode that is so gripping and real about a man coming to terms with his imminent death due to HIV, right? What a fucking straight person version of a gay thing right which is the gayest version of a gay thing it's just normalized drag race normalized yeah. untucked bitch and that's like that's <laughs> robbie in honor of our sweet robbie normalized untucked bitch okay so you, you talk about that designing women episode but like i uh, like a counterpoint to that like my favorite sorry i know this is derailing it a little the golden girls episode where rose gets thinks she contracted hiv through the blood transfusion also made some really great points and to have them come out and say you know aids isn't a bad person disease in the 80s like that was just huge so anyway i'm sorry it was i mean it was it was very progressive at the time i mean even golden girls wasn't perfect but at the time it was really revolutionary for people the way people were thinking and i feel like this book in itself will be that way for comic books i mean it already is it's already causing waves in the comic book um era because it didn't translate and a lot of people well not a lot of people but some people were like well i don't understand what that means it should have translated for me it's like well we have this thing called the internet and um it's a very right. useful thing you know it hasn't been around for that long but it, it exists <laughs> <laughs> you know you can it's right there you can translate any language should that I, exists <laughs> I, that's what you guys have been saying there's Spanish in this book, and I didn't even think twice about it. Oh my god! Because <laughs> no Spanish. That brings it's not even it's not even like <laughs> it's very conversational Spanish. Yeah. It's not even like yeah. it's not even like high level Spanish. So like no. how do you how have you not heard any of that by now? Like yeah. but, but like even if you haven't, that brings me to my point is like Nico, you didn't even notice no, that right? it was like, you didn't because you know Spanish, you didn't know it was there. So Spanish is a universal or should be more universal. It is a universal language. So just because, you know, some people in America don't know it doesn't mean it automatically needs to be translated. If you want to know something and it's not the language you speak of, you go look it up. People can know all these languages from Lord of the Rings, like Elvish and all that, that does not exist 
Mm-hmm. And they know it verbatim. They can study it. They know it. People know even know Krokoan. You can look up Spanish words or a Spanish sentence and know and translate it for yourself if you really want to know. The broadcast has spoken. But he's dead right. If you can speak Urukai, Elvish, Klingon, Romulan, and and write in Gallifreyan. Wait, there are people that actually speak Romulan. (laughs) Yes, there are. There really, really are. But like, if you can, if you can get invested in all of these uh, fictional languages and whatnot, then looking up a couple of regular ass Spanish words that are basically conversational Spanish at that. Hello, welcome to Google Translate. Get off your ass and quit being proud <laughs> of being monolinguistic in actual languages. Like, uh, like Macy Gray seriously. sampled. Get up, get out, and do something. Mm-hmm. Right, people have to remember. Like, there is actually no official language in the u.s like there's none so english spanish like they all of government forms are in all those languages because we decided not to do a universal language which is great we should be like that we should be more accepting we should be more open why don't we learn more languages and teach them younger to kids i don't know right well because we spent so much time trying to erase other languages yeah true and like rod you're from texas so like even though you're not uh, a latin man you are from like you know pretty much like you're, you're from you're from Selena State, okay? <laughs> I, am, I am from Selena State, and we love Selena. Speak, I mean, just just to go back a little bit in the, the beginning shirt. of the book, I, the I, shirt. I, I love the I want that Selena sweatshirt shirt, whatever it is. I want that um, because I mean, every Texan that isn't you know racist wants that shirt <laughs> because it's Selena. Like Selena is basically our state person. If you had oh state people, I don't know. And but they're like, and the dinos. oh my god, Los <laughs> Dinos, and he's the Dino. Oh my god, yeah, exactly. That's why it's so perfect. I love that. Terry Blast incorporated that. I mean, he's, you know, lived in Texas, so he knows all about Selena and all that culture. And it, it it was a thing that really pulled me into the book, being Texan. I mean, no, I'm not Latinx, but I am immersed in this culture. My fiance is Latinx. I mean, my my a lot of my childhood friends were Latinx, and I have I have Latinx coworkers, Latin Latinx, Latinx, Latinx. I am immersed in this and I was really appreciative seeing this like brought to the attention of a lot of people because, you know, this is a new book for a lot of people. They picked it up because it's new and we're getting this in the first issue. And I feel like a lot of people are being more exposed to that. You know, people that live in more of the Northern States where all you see is maybe like one black person and mostly all white, like you're getting to know more of these cultures and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I teach in, um, for those people familiar with like New Jersey and the New York area, I teach in Elizabeth and Newark and Camden. And like, I teach in areas where the kids predominantly do know Spanish and speak it at home and then I teach in some areas where like they look at me a little funny for parking my like 15 year old car in the parking lot and like people like (laughs) smell the poverty on me and they shun me because I wind up in these really ritzy neighborhoods because you know that's just where I'm assigned to teach that time right and like Mm -hmm. there really are kids who when I make some comment about being Cuban they're like oh you're a Cuban what's being Mm. a Cuban like and I'm like what do you mean how don't Mm. you know anybody browner than me I'm not a Cuban I'm not a cigar Jesus but like (laughs) 
I should not be the Brent, the benchmark for non-white. That is a terrible decision. That is, that is a very bad decision for your understanding of enculturation, my friends. I, mean, I, I definitely understand that as like a biracial person who is more light-skinned than anything. I can't be mistaken for a lot of races. Some white people mm-hmm. might even just see me as white. They might not look past just like the lighter skin. I'm like, oh, he's just tan. So... <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I understand, you know, whatever, and it, it's it's their eyesight, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> but like even even in, even in like more white uh, workspaces that I've been in, as soon as I say that I'm black, they're like, "Oh my god, you're black!" Oh, then and then it's like a different thing. Then they ask right. me all these like black specific kind of coded questions and get my opinion Do you eat on it these Roscoe's things. chicken and waffles. I I mean I literally have had that question asked me if I eat chicken Same. and waffles and I do but like I've never touched the damn thing. Somebody I, I, assumed because I was black. Right. I just ate Jonah chicken and waffles last week. <laughs> uh, those are amazing. Like shit. Like ask me about those. I'll tell you where to get them. <laughs> chicken and waffles are amazing, but like. Don't ask me just because I'm black. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, no, they, yeah. they literally ended their sentence with, well, you know, they have them in Compton and Hollywood. What? You know, because you're black. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm dead serious. I had to, like, my coworkers looked at him like he had lost his effing mind because this was my superior. And I just, I just, I turned around and walked out of the room because I was going to get fired if I said anything. <laughs> like, oh, it was bad but no no i get exactly what you're talking about right there see that brings me all the way around back to my first point is there's no reason for people to be like that anymore or even for this book if you want to understand something you want to understand what this character is saying in these small small little bubbles that it's not like the whole book is in spanish then you can look it up and yeah. you can do the research. There's no reason why you should have any more, as many ignorant questions. I mean, some are going to slip out just because we're human and we make mistakes, but you should be better because the internet does exist and there's a plethora of information. Yeah. Oh my, oh my God, there's apps you can like point your phone at something and it translates for you. So like, there right. is no excuse. Yeah. Like, you don't even have to type it in. Like, it'll look at the picture and say, oh, here's a translation right here. Yet, I don't think anybody's complained about the dinosaur names not being made easier. <laughs> Nobody's right? like the Jurassic Park first one and that Jurassic uh-huh. Park third one. Okay, okay. Talking about that though, like I did love that Julian like had to tell Beto that there was this app that told him about dinosaurs. So right. he's <laughs> like, he's like, why don't you be this dinosaur? And he's like, what? Oh my god, I loved it. I loved that. So that was so cute. Much. Like, oh my god. So that had me thinking if so if he can look at a dinosaur and kind of know what they're about and get into his brain in the gym information, he could turn into that dinosaur, right? So what if he's like a beast boy in DC, like if he goes into space and there's like a reptilian type creature, can he turn into that creature because they are reptilian? Like dinosaurs are just reptiles, so he can turn into reptile things, right? So can he yep. turn into well, these space reptile things? If well, he like sees when, them? Wait, dinosaurs what are era actually, does it end? Dinosaurs like, are actually the forerunners to birds, so they're well, closer true. to the ichthyo instead of the uh, herpetology. Well, true, hold on, true, true. I have to do a thing, and I'm going to out myself real hard here. I'm gonna, I'm going to put it all on the table, right? I have always cut, and there's a prom. I promise it's going somewhere. I have always been kind of <laughs> like 
Venom? Why? Right? But then I just finished my insane Jason Aaron Thor reread. And I'm like, okay, but now I'm obsessed with the All Black. Fuck! Okay. So, like, Rod is always talking about how incredible Donnie Cates' Venom is. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay. And I did it. So I've been reading a lot of... Uh, Venom and King in Black and so then it was pointed out to me that Reptile was in this uh, King in Black Spider-Man by Jed McKay and so I went and took a look at that and you know I don't think he turned into any like space dragons I think Mm. he stayed kind of terrestrial but Mm -hmm. you know I'm I I'm with you because if they're pretty close to birds, I kind of want to see him turn into a freaky Shi'ar the thing. Oh my god, yes, yes. <laughs> oh. But okay, back to the King and Black thing. When he turned into the I don't know what the name of the dinosaur was, but the big sea dinosaur, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing! Like that is an amazing power he has right there. But uh, like, I what if ooh could he turn into Sauron? Like. I mean, he kind of does anyway, doesn't he? He could. I mean, he could essentially turn into Sauron, probably bigger yeah. than Sauron, actually. Well, it depends on if he goes full dino or if he retains some of his humanoid features. Because he said when he goes full dino, he kind of loses part of his more logical thinking mm-hmm. and becomes just very much more of the base creature. So he's really afraid to like go full dino. But I'm very sure that he could take on like very specific aspects of his uh physiognomy and, and, and features and whatnot. It's like the wings or you know like the head shape or that kind of thing. Um but Sauron still has like mutant powers on top of that. Yeah, so true. true true. Like so is does the amulet give him sort of like if you think about Snowbird's powers, right, from Alpha Flight. So she was tied to the land of Canada, so she could only turn into um animals that were born and based in Canada. Canada, right? So that's why mm-hmm. she was able to turn into Sasquatch before she died because it, he was created in Canada. So, like, is that kind of like what Reptile's powers are? Just like a mystical, like, narrowing of it? I mean, at this point right now, it's it's more up in the air. And I feel like what's going to happen, especially since we got, you know, his cousin um, having the powers, and then you see that little sparkly in her chest as well, I feel like it's going to be more of a, like, family type Ooh. thing. And that's why it chose him. And I feel like it, Terry Blast is going to explain more of the gem in this writing because it's kind of been trying to be explored, you know, with Norman Osborne experimenting on him and doing this and doing that. They've come up with like some information, but nothing concrete and nothing just flat out saying you like what exactly it does, just like straightforward or can't do anything else type of mm-hmm. shit, you know, like it, it has potential to keep going. Well, I sort of. Hmm. Yeah, I like this. Is it? This seems to like it's going to. Um, this seems like it's going to reinvent Reptile the same way this America Chavez series is trying to is reinventing America Chavez. So I love this, and I can't wait to see where they position him. I'm, I'm sort of wondering if this is going to be a lineage thing. Ooh. So what? What if the the lineage of this crystal is actually tied to his family, and that's why you're seeing some of. Um, yeah, that's what I would honestly love if have some you of know. That kind and sparkle show up so could be a huge thing it definitely could be that's one of the things i would love is you know them becoming like sort of like a power-based you know latinx family team it's like these these three maybe the other ones too but especially these three kids themselves I feel like that'd be really like a tight knit team. They could form their own little like badass superhero team. So you're suggesting like a Latinx power pack 
in the style <laughs> of the white tiger family without any of the really sad, tragic, everybody kills the Latinos. Okay, I'm really into this. And I'm really on board. And I feel like America just found out that her sisters are kind of like half imaginary. So I feel like if Reptile is just suddenly getting like, you know, Zappy Zap and um, the gay one, I feel like... <laughs> Like it's Reptile and Zappy Zap and the gay one. Wow. No, wow. So I feel well, what like... if they just take on different periods of, of quote unquote dinosaurs or extinct animals? So you got like Cretaceous and you know, Cetaceous and all that can be like the... Than the gay one, so <laughs> Okay, but what if the gay one can turn into just random cryptids? That would be amazing. Oh my god. <laughs> Julian is his name for some. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what if goodness. what if Julian can just turn into just random cryptids? That would be amazing. Like, oh. I'm gonna be a siren right. tonight. I, I don't know where to go. So, like, <laughs> uh, do you have more? You're the in charge man. Yeah, I, I did have more. I was going to say I don't think the other two are really gonna have that many because she has like expert like laser power craziness so i think she's gonna yeah blasty blast i don't think she's gonna turn dinosaur at all and then the gay one is going to is um is is very intelligent and is very like i'm going to design this and design that maybe that's part of his like allure and power and he can oh no 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 i'm sorry if you make it the the if you make julian the gay one the a fashion designer is his powers okay i got a problem with that no it's not gonna be a fashion designer i'm saying that he's gonna be very intelligent and he's very like um and he can think of like ways to build things and all like that, not just fashion. So like, so like forge, not jumbo carnation. I'm very on board with that. Like forge, not jumbo. Yes. Because every team needs that smart person to lead them along and build them things and think of strategies and all of that. And I love reptile, but he just doesn't seem like that type of character. Okay. So, well, that'd be great if if uh, the gay one, Julian. <laughs> Uh, turned out to be like um, the more evolved form of dinosaurs that we've uh, finally discovered more about where they have the feathers and they have you know the more where they have the more complicated um, uh, uh, sounds that they can make it was like they had an entire like they say (laughs) dinosaurs could have actually had a full no that's the whole thing is they have discovered that dinosaurs the ones that we know of the dinosaurs that we know of didn't you know, have no. just bare skin they actually had feathers so i'd love to like if he has dinosaur powers as well i would love to see him as that the advanced level or or the more evolutionarily um forward dinosaurs that developed like even better feathers and more language and could hunt in packs and you know like coordinate all that kind of stuff so be smarter and even if he goes full dinosaur he doesn't lose himself like um like uh reptile does okay does that make sense (laughs) yeah i mean you know it it was a it went around a little bit but (laughs) there and i understand your point i really do I i 
So we will, let's say our last, I want to say my, our last points on this, because this is been such a great discussion. Um, Nico, your last thoughts on Reptile number one, this fantastic issue. You know, I think one of the things that this issue did the best was it utilized an outdoor scenario that engaged me in why we were outdoors. One of the things that I think a lot of comics frequently struggle to do is figure out why that setting. And by putting it in this big open air kind of market, it was able to give it a cultural tie that also created a sense of something to lose, right? Not only is this a cultural landmark to his people, but it's a cultural land, like, you know, his family, but it's a cultural landmark where people currently are and can get hurt. And instead of putting this at a mall, which would have felt very, okay, sure, I guess malls probably still exist somewhere, right? Right. And instead of putting this at just like a park, there was a reason to care. And it's that sort of precision that for me kind of underlined what made this book so great. An attention to detail that said, if I'm going to do, you know, because you know Terry, and even if you don't know Terry, if you're someone who knows about the struggle of a protected class or a minority class struggling to get their due, you know that you know that every time that writer gets that chance, they think to themselves, right, but I might be the last time. I might be the last chance that a queer Latin man has to put a big touch on a major Latin character, right? And with that in mind, knowing that Terry pretty much went you know, chancletas to the wall on this was really an incredible thing for him to do. I should have said cojones to the wall, but I was trying to be like delicate about it. Um, oh, have it, you ever caught a chancla? Trust me, that's not delicate. Oh my God, I'm wearing them right now. So, um, you know, I just, I really do feel like the attention to detail, the specificity of wanting to create the intimacy of familiarity for the audience, whether they are Latinx or not, is kind of the predominant strength of Terry's writing in general. But it shines so beautifully here on a character that you didn't realize you already loved. And I feel like this is one of the best entry issues we've had to a character in a really long time. I, I would say this brought a character that I'd seen in titles, but maybe hadn't stood out to me as much and brought him to the forefront in a way that I want more. I need more. Um, I, I absolutely loved everything about his appearances here. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, when I read Avengers Academy, when I first started reading it, I just read it because Danny Moonstar showed up for a few issues. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, oh, these kids are okay. Uh, I read Avengers Arena, which really had so many characters. It was really hard to do a focus on. But this book, here makes me want to go back and read more i already after reading this i already went back and revisited the king and king and black spider-man because it was so amazing i just i want more i want more i want more of the family i want more of julian i want him to get some powers too just not like eva and reptile like i want to know what is going on with the whole family (laughs) um not the key kid, but um, I want to know. I want to know what is going on with the whole family. I love seeing the interactions. Yes, it was very specifically steeped in a culture, but it had so many points that everybody can relate to on it. So I want more. I can't wait to see what's going on. Yay! Exactly. What about you, Raven? Oh God, where do you even start? I loved this book because a, it's in my stomping grounds, and it's really great to see something outside of New York. <coughs> Cough every book in Marvel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> why why whenever they show chicago and like when kitty pride goes home i'm kate pride goes home i'm like yes <laughs> right? so like 
it was it was really great because they did take their time to to learn about the area. I know Santa uh, Santi Alley well. I know the La Brea Tar Pits well. It was great to like see that and really feel like you were kind of um, in the middle of all of that. So it it really helped uh, draw me in and really feel connected to these new characters. Um, and I, I, I absolutely adored and I cannot wait for the next issue because dang it, I want to see feathered dinosaurs. Now I do too, kind of. <laughs> I would like to see Reptil turn into some feathered dinosaurs. He needs to go to the Google and research. Um, right? But I think he will. And what I really love about this book, um, well, first I want to say, I do know Terry Blass. We've hung out in person and I do love him. And I was excited for this book because of him and because I like Reptile as well. But I was like, I need to go into this book with a constructive mind because I do like Terry, but I don't want to the cloud my judgment of this book. I need to read it as constructively as I do all the other books. And I have no qualms with this book. This book was really great. It was written well. The art was beautiful. It really showed a culture in a different light and a positive light to so many different people. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just for that culture either, it was like Nathan said, for everybody. But one of my favorite things of this whole book was really seeing Reptile show off his powers in a way because I can see him being like on the Avengers one day as he gets older and being a prominently like Latinx character on the Avengers with this, you know, not stereotypical power would be amazing. It can be so like badass and strong. And I mean, shoot, why not? What the hell? He could even lead the Avengers one day. Like, let's do that. I could see him really evolving into his powers pun intended (laughs) and just go anywhere with this because he was on the avengers academy he should go that route even though the avengers is the most popular people that everybody likes i want to see him go that route and really evolve and really stay around don't just go away after what i'm saying is like i hope this character stays around after these first five issues i hope they don't just throw him under the ground again and let him fossilize until we get another five issues of him like let's keep going after this 